This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, February the 14th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, so you don't need me to tell you, but it's pretty nasty out there today. Most of the island is going to have some winter storm warnings in effect, travel advisories in effect in the eastern region. It's pretty bad already. Apparently going to get a lot worse, so if you don't have to go out and about probably should not do that all right and you know it's bad when metro bus never even started their day today the liquor stores are closed so that's all you need to know about how stormy it's going to be in this part of the province okay let's get her going so happy valentine's day to you or as some people call it happy valentine's day <laughs> that's my favorite that and chicago okay let's keep going so on valentine's day you know it's time to celebrate romance love and kissy face fealty you know whether it be candy and cupids and dark chocolate and flowers whatever the case may be and hopefully you have an opportunity to have a Valentine close by that you can celebrate with. Now, Valentine's Day, of course, is pretty much a Hallmark card holiday or celebration. But nobody really knows the firm origins of Valentine's Day, which is kind of curious. You can maybe go all the way back to the uh, Roman Empire, and what we celebrate today with romance and love was pretty much not the case when it was celebrated back in the Roman Empire days. It was sort of bloody and violent, so we won't get too deep into that. But they're talking about a bunch of Christian martyrs were named Valentine. So Valentine's Day was honored on the February the 14th for Valentine of Rome and Valentine of Tyranny. So it goes on and on and on to talk about some of these ancient celebrations. I don't know what a transition into this day of celebration of love. But there you go. Happy Valentine's Day. And it's also Ash Wednesday. So I heard Brian Medore mention in the newscast that Dawson Mercer hit the score sheet last night with an assist in the Devil's victory. No hook got one as well. Connor McDavid, six assists last night. A six-point night. All of a sudden, look out for him. Now, this is a story might not be of concern to many people, but it's an interesting one based on taxation and just how pricey it is to live in this country. So this is once again about sports. And the Toronto Maple Leaf captain, John Tavares. So CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, is chasing Tavares for $8 million in taxes including $1.2 million in interest related to his $15.3 million signing bonus he received upon joining the Leafs after he left the New York Islanders. So here's what's interesting about it. You know, for sports fans in this country, specifically in the NHL, I guess in Major League Baseball as well, and I suppose in the world of NBA basketball with the Raptors, it's going to be more difficult than ever before to attract high-priced talent to play in Canadian cities. Unless there's a treaty that's been in place for quite a long time. It's a tax treaty between Canada and the United States, which stipulates uh, that an inducement to sign an agreement related to the performance of the services of an athlete is different from income from employment and should not be taxed at more than 15%. But CRA considers the signing bonus salaried income and is ordering a tax rate of more than 38%, thus the $8 million scrap that's on the go. And if you look through the course of the last decade about where free agents choose to go, many of them want to go to places where there's little to no tax. There are certain jurisdictions in the United States where the people don't pay tax. So no state income tax if you want to play for Dallas or Nashville, Tampa Bay or Florida Panthers. So Tavares being chased around for $8 million. Anyway, interesting sports song. 
Okay, so a couple of randoms there. It was on this date in 2004 that three former PayPal employees launched a video-sharing website. Of course, YouTube is the second-largest search engine in the world behind only Google. Get a load of some of these numbers. 51% of Internet access users in the world use YouTube. 2.7 billion monthly active users so far this year, 2024. There's... A quarter of the world's population uses YouTube every month. Revenues, pretty outstanding. About $300 billion last year. Amazing stuff. Anyway, let's keep going. Uh, Or $3 billion last No, $30 billion last year, pardon me. All right, also... In 1978, they began to launch GPS satellites. And on this date in 1989, there was a bunch of them launched, made 24 operating. And of course, for people who are maybe out in the woods or unfamiliar territory, or more, most notably, when you travel, GPS has been extremely helpful. So as of August 15th of last year, there had been 83 GPS satellites had been built. 31 are currently launched and operational. 41 have been retired. And they actually lost two upon launch. On that front, oh, maybe I should backtrack to uh, YouTube for one second. Did I hear correctly? Someone sent me an email that based on Minister Crocker's conversations with Verbo and the Premier's comments, has Verbo actually taken that ad down? That's what I was told. I'm trying to get confirmation, but I only found it out a few minutes prior to 9 o'clock. So all the hullabaloo about Verbo, and it's not for me to tell you what you should be offended by, but I'm not so sure that people outside of this province are an understanding of the relationship between this province and Eyes the Buy would have even known what to make of that ad. But anyway, apparently it's been taken down, which is amazing stuff. And in the world of travel and GPS and what have you, there's still plenty of conversation to be had about the Arrive Can app, whether or not it was necessary, the fact there's no paper trail, the Auditor General Karen Hogan can't even come up with a final price tag, estimating, based on the information at hand, that it's maybe some $59.5 million for an app that really nobody ever uses anymore. It's, once it was made optional, it just went by the wayside. Now, of course, there will be lots of politics played with this. It is important to get to the bottom of it because there's lots of really shady interactions from the consideration of creating this app for international travel and then some of the glitches in the system upon return, you know, being told that you have to isolate when, in fact, you did not, and on and on it goes. The relationship between GC strategies and some of the people involved with public procurement at the federal government level, and then, of course, when we bring the full war politics to play, Mr. Poliev, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, is asking for the RCMP to get involved. I think there's already ongoing investigations internally, whether it be at the Canada Border Services Agency, which is important. Maybe, you know, the RCMP, do they need to be told to do their job? I don't know. I'll leave it up to you. But I don't think that story is over. In fact, it's far from over. Anyway, let's keep going. had a couple of calls yesterday regarding healthy lifestyle facilities, pieces of recreational infrastructure. You know, uh, Mr. Davis, Tom Davis, who's running in the Ward 4 uh, by-election here in the city of St. John's, talked about the Muse Centre. A caller later in the program disappointed that that was an issue that was put in the crosshairs for how government spends money. We were told last week by the host committee for the 2025 Canada Summer Games that all the facilities were on track to be completed in time. And now we're told, and I, you can only hope that whatever delays are working at the Aquarina, but the opening or the reopening to the general public is going to be pushed back by a full year. 
We thought we'd get back in the facility sometime early this fall. Now, apparently, it's going to be much later, maybe a year later. But what's interesting about that year later, even though we were told everything was on track, is that the games are actually in August. So a year from September means it won't be open. What? So are they actually going to be able to get that facility open? Will the athletes be able to train on the only uh, Olympic-sized pool in the province? So apparently there's a delay there. And the obvious conditions, you know, there are obvious issues. Labor availability, supply chain, challenges, and all the rest. And, of course, that facility back, built back for the 1977 games, but not going to be opened on schedule for the public anyway, that is. All right. So days like today, you know, I think many people who are maybe always focused on uh, concerns regarding homelessness or people living in precarious homelessness possibilities, and then the whole tent business. So we were told a long time ago there would be no one living there, and there's a lot to this conversation. I don't pretend that this is a uncomplicated matter, but when you hear from the federal housing advocate Marie-José Ull, talk about there's a right for people, if they choose, to live in a tent encampment. And it's important to note that these encampments are right across the country. There have been instances where police have gone in and forcibly removed people. That has not been the case in the recent past year. It looks like there's less and less police involvement. Apparently there is a surveillance system been put in place. But when she released her report called uh, Upholding Dignity and Human Rights, six calls to action to address the ongoing homeless, uh, homeless encampments across the country. You know, whether it be the provision of the basic necessities like clean water, food, and health care, and maybe some additional what people call wraparound services, it's estimated 20 to 25 percent of homeless people across the country are living in this tent, these tent encampments, and not just in capital cities and big urban areas. Many parts of rural Canada are seeing the same thing. So when we know that there's been a variety of crises that governments provincially, municipally, and federally have had to try to juggle, it's a wonder how we don't consider the food insecurity issue and the homelessness issue as an actual emergency or crisis. It's one thing to put forward pots of money. It's quite another to attend to it as best possible in the short term. So that means we welcome your conversations about the Comfort Inn and whether or not we're on the right track with that 140-room transition home. Yes, it'd be better than an emergency shelter and a congregate living when you get your own room with a lock on the door and your own key. There's still many, many questions to be answered here. I mean, it's scheduled to open to accept guests or residents next month. We still don't know anything about the criteria for vetting and who's eligible. We know very little about the uh, human resources on staff, and I, when I mean uh, social workers, mental health uh, counselors, and or addiction treatment f professionals. So we really don't know what's going on there necessarily quite yet. Folks in the area, understandably, are not that thrilled with the location of it. There will be concerns with so many of the supports that are out there in the community are generally speaking in the downtown area. We'll have Will some of these services be forced to widen their reach because there will be a, sig a significant number of people living at the Comfort Inn, and maybe living is a poor choice of words, because it's really intended to be a transition home. So how are we pragmatically going to approach that concept versus simply have it as a turnstile, a rotating door, where it becomes just a replacement for an emergency shelter just in better settings with a lock on the door. So there's really a lot to that. And in the world of getting into your own home, the Canadian Home Builders Association, back in the news, rightfully so, talked about the barriers to home ownership. Apparently, there's been a 2.5% decrease in home ownership since 2011. So the obvious, right? It's interest rates. Many people in the natural churn going from rental, and there's nothing wrong with renting. Some people choose to rent for their entire life. So be it. But with the high interest rates, some of the natural churn to move from a rental into potentially owning your own home, 
Maybe that's been stalled or compromised because of the high interest rates and consequently the high mortgage payments. But then there's all kinds of issues regarding amortization as well. The Home Builders Association asked for amortization rates to 30 years for new buyers and new builds and the stress test. It is extremely onerous to pass the mortgage stress test these days. Yes, when we see interest rates fluctuate, people have to ensure that they're going to be able to keep up with a potential hike in their mortgage. But the people, the number of homeowners who have missed uh, payments three months in a row are at historic lows. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when you look at the math of how much uh, mortgages have increased. But there's tons of barriers to getting into your own home, and those need to be dealt with in some form or fashion. Uh, did I see Dave walk away? Are you still out there, Dave? Anyway, so we're not going to the break yet because there's no one there to push the button. Okay, and speaking of that, and the whole concept of aging in place. You know, it's fine for me and the seniors advocate and others to be talking about what that means in preparations for the future so that more Canadians, if they so choose, and are up to being able to care for themselves, maybe with some additional support regarding home care, to stay in your own home where you're comfortable, it's familiar surroundings and all the rest, close by family and friends, quite likely. But what we really need is for healthcare professionals to help us understand whether or not they understand the issues regarding social isolation and loneliness. Now, someone's going to tell me inevitably that you're bringing that up a lot. Well, I think we should. Here's some of the definitions, you know, because they're not the same thing. Social isolation is the lack of relationships with others and little to no social support or contact associated with risk even if people don't feel lonely. Loneliness, on the other hand, is feeling alone and disconnected from others. It's feeling like you do not have meaningful or close relationships or a sense of belonging. Reflects the difference between a person's actual and desired level of connection. That means that even a person with lots of friends can feel lonely. And the issue there is the link between social isolation, loneliness, and your overall health. It's extremely real. Everywhere I go, every report I look at talks about virtually the exact same thing. The direct link between loneliness and heart disease and stroke, type 2 diabetes, depression, anxiety, addiction, societality and health self-harm, dementia, earlier death. Unless we can wrap our minds around that and understand what it means to address it with structural changes, then nothing's going to change for the better. In fact, things are going to change for the worse. Just look at the age of the demographic age here in this province and the potential for people to be prone to loneliness and what that means for their health. So that's a societal issue. But of course, and I hate to do it, it also comes with a significant implication of dollars and cents. So anyway, that... Uh, Really glad Susan Walsh is on that. Maybe she can revisit the program here and further elaborate on what her and her team are finding out via the research and the conversation nationwide. Okay. Uh, how are we doing out there, David? I'll maybe get to the calls here pretty quick. Very quickly, though. So for folks who are yearning for a federal general election, it might not be that far off. It looks like the Liberal and the NDP supply and confidence agreement is teetering. It was always going to come down as to whether or not the federal Liberal government was going to table universal pharmacare legislation. The ongoing negotiations between the two parties all boils down to who's going to pay, whether or not there'll be a single-payer system like the NDP want, and or it's going to be a staggered or laddered uh, implication here for introducing universal pharmacare. And of course, we're the only country in the world with universal health care without universal pharmacare or coverage for prescription drugs. We still don't even know how it's going to work with provincial plans, but if that's something that you've been watching, it looks like that's heating up because apparently the deadline for the Liberals to come forward is the 1st of March, so a couple of weeks away before 
that. Okay, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Uh, beginning the conversation this morning is Harris. He wants to talk about the number of flights that we saw and the number of private jets that were leaving Las Vegas after the Super Bowl. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let us begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. And good morning, Harris. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. I know it's a terrible weather day. It is. But I just wanted to change the conversation uh, for a moment. Sure. Uh, I was reading earlier this morning with interest and disgust (laughs) about the number of private jets that arrived in Las Vegas over the weekend for the Super Bowl. 882 private jets. Now, it's clear that there's a top and a bottom to environmental concerns in the world and carbon and carbon pricing. I mean, we're getting hit over the head all the time. And I just wanted to bring that to people's attention, that the superstars and uh, whatever are, are able to travel freely around the world without any concern about the amount of carbon they use, because I understand that uh, private jet travel is probably one of the biggest users of carbon. And... Um, well, when we're talking about just how many people are able to fit in that aircraft as compared to like a 200-seater commercial airliner, yes, on an individual footprint issue, it is absolutely. Yes. Yep. But that's, that, that, that was, that's, my, that's my thing this morning, just to uh, bring that to people's attention that the next time they're, you know, uh, watching some superstar realize how much uh, disregard they have for the environment. Well, there's absolutely a, a serious issue regarding hypocrisy, right? I mean, you know, do as I say and not as I do kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. many of those folks who own private jets will indeed be speaking to issues regarding emissions and carbon, uh, uh, the climate change-related issues. And, you know, I choose to listen to people who actually have some scientific background versus someone who simply is a celebrity or a well-known person. Yeah. And the story I read, Harris, in the Business Insider uh, magazine is that there was over 1,000 private jets that had landed during Super Bowl week at the airstrip in Las Vegas. And, you know, curiously, so I had another little look around because this caught my attention as well, to be honest. So there's 14,600 business aircraft, which are private jets, registered in the United States alone. Yes, that's right. Which is a huge number. And you're you're right. You know, whether they be congregating in Davos, Switzerland, to lecture us about carbon emissions and individual footprints or what have you, yet all the while you see the pictures of the airstrip that is littered with private jets lined up wing to wing. Uh, Fair enough. And the most active private jet in the world world last year, Taylor Swift. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It took off or landed about a thousand times. I think her involvement in the Super Bowl or, or her periphery to the Super Bowl this year kind of shone a bigger light on it because last year, I also understand, this was the second largest private jet appearance. Last year, there were 991. So uh, I guess she is, uh, her presence shone a brighter light on it. Yeah, I choose not to care about that kind of stuff, to be honest. I don't have the brain space to be worried about who's at the game or who's not at the game. Uh, But that whole concept of her presence, as you put it, and the way that's been supercharged, politically speaking, is almost too ridiculous to talk about. But, uh, yeah, she was there, no doubt about it. And I don't know how many times she was captured on TV. You could actually bet, uh, you know, what they call a prop bet, a proposition bet, as to how many times she'd be seen on camera. I don't know what the over-under was. I I was watching the game, uh, and I just did a little tally on on the desk in front of me while I was watching the game and she was on camera 10 times 
And I since learned that her her total presence, they were all put side by side, was 54 seconds. So obviously, maybe she's starting to wear out her welcome as well, you know? Yeah, and I don't know. I just find it fascinating that there's so many people that that was the biggest storyline going into the Super Bowl versus the yeah. fact that the Chiefs could win three in five years or a rematch of a Super Bowl pass, the presence of the Mahomes of the world. But no, people focused on a pop singer. And she's, I mean, she's massive. She's one of the most popular people in the world. So, Absolutely. Yeah, amazing stuff. I, I kind of like her, to be honest. Uh, you know, Patty, I don't, uh, if someone came to my door today and said, I'll give you $10,000 to name a Taylor Swift, song i had to put the money back in their pocket I, I can't even name one song you know so, so you've never bought any of her records no i know no, <laughs> no, no. okay I'm still, I'm still firmly uh stuck in western country western music so i'll i'll stay there yeah well uh fair enough so who are your favorite country artists uh, oh well i i'm i go back to the old stuff willie nelson merle haggard uh, guys like that, you know, a lot of the new country music I don't even guess, but uh, Merle Willie and those guys, um, they're the ones that interest me and they're the ones I listen to the most. Yeah, give me some Johnny Cash, some Chris Christopherson, fair enough, I'm in. Yes, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, you were talking earlier about YouTube, and uh, YouTube uh, is a great source for a lot of these videos that you never, that you'll never see anywhere else but YouTube. Absolutely, so, it's a brilliant platform. YouTube is a great is a great resource, you know. Yeah, now there's some troublesome uh, content on it, but by and large, it's really fun to have a surf around and see some of these videos, whether yeah. people people's own uh, YouTube channels. And there's people out there; that's all they do. They're YouTube personalities, or they have YouTube yeah. pages, or whatever the right reference is, and yeah. creating or generating significant revenue just by people clicking on their own page to see whatever it is—an ACDC video or Johnny Cash at San Quentin or whatever it is. Uh, Harris, good to have you the show appreciate the time no i really really appreciate it but and, and hopefully uh people will think a bit a little more about uh, um uh, the environment especially when the government puts another tax on uh, on carbon you know thanks for this stay in touch all the very best have a great day you too bye. harris take care bye-bye yeah and here comes a potentially cruel summer and if you're worried about taylor swift at the super bowl you can just shake it off Right, let's go to line number two. So good morning to so the director and playwright behind Heart Play coming up at the LSPU Hall. That's Marie Pike. Good morning, Marie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and happy Valentine's Day to you. Happy Valentine's Day to you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I am. I have a production coming up at the LSPU Hall next week. Thursday, February 22nd, and it is an hour-long comedy. So tell us about it. You know, inside this envelope, you know, someone was telling me that this is actually Love Month. Fair ball. Yes. So tell us, you know, the synopsis. Without spoiling what's going to take place, and people will see at the Heart Play, give us the overview. Yeah. The Heart Play, okay, so it's um, it's a story about a woman living in a cardboard cutout two-dimensional world. She uh, ends up losing her grandmother right off the top and quickly develops a black hole in her life. And day after day, she's unable to rid herself of this hole. Like she talks to a doctor, talks to a friend, her boyfriend, and it just keeps growing until one night she experiences a dark night of the soul and is confronted by her raging emo, almost like a Robert Smith inspired heart. 
And then dying to live, her heart, of course, breaks out of her two-dimensional world and turns her life upside down, exposing all of the negative space, forcing her into wholeness. And uh, it's actually... uh, it's a good laugh. It's a deep show. Um, and overall, I'd say it'd be a fun night out for people who uh, take it in. So let's break down one of the quotes in the news release here. I became kind of obsessed with my Venus and Scorpio astrology placement. <laughs> yeah. Build on that for me. Okay. So I'm really into astrology. Um, may I ask your birthday, Patty? First of May. All right, so you are a Taurus, which I'm sure you already know. That I am. Okay, me and myself, I'm a Sagittarius. So my Venus placement, which is like the planet of love, is in Scorpio. And that can be, that's, you know, having love in detriment. So a lot of times when people have that kind of a placement, it can signify that your love is a bit foreign to you or you find yourself loving things that maybe you should or and people that you shouldn't everything is a little bit twisted and so i got i i got really obsessed with my venus and scorpio placement and i thought oh my gosh why do i keep falling into these love ruts um what is happening why do i love so intensely and then um, I basically went to see a Reiki practitioner about it and thought that she put a creature on my chest. And, um, and from that, I, st- I said, what would happen if my heart came out of my chest? What would it say? And basically, it was kind of uh, a raging emo, Robert Smith-inspired man. <laughs> that is, and, and that is played by Wendy Smallwood. Fantastic. So just a question as an aside. As a Taurus and a Sagittarius, are we compatible? You know what? My mother is a Taurus, and she's like my favorite person in the entire world. So I would say yes, but probably most astrologers would say no, because you are Earth, and you are fixed, and I am fire, and I am uh, mutable. But you know what? There's so many other planets in your chart, Patty, which we can get into at another time. Because <laughs> I love it. I'm here for it all day. Well, just very quickly, I can be fire. Make no mistake. <laughs> Marie, I know there's also a prize pack for people who purchased tickets to your five, the last three shows. Tell us about that eligibility and what's in the pack. Absolutely. So, yeah, RCAT, they have an amazing price back for people who purchase tickets to the last three shows. So to the Heart Play, uh, which is happening in February, Between Breaths, which is happening in March, and um, Tamasha Otamasha, which is happening in April. So if you buy all tickets to those shows, the prize pack, uh, you'll be eligible to win um, a $30 gift certificate from Gingerly Bakery, a case of ice big iceberg beer a case of crown and anchor um, a crown and anchor t-shirt from kitty vitty brewery an hour-long photo session from steel cut media worth two hundred dollars two bottles of mozzie cider and a fifty dollar gift card from taslo and a vinyl from land of the lakes and it could be frankie it sounds terrific. So it's coming up at the hall. What are the dates one more time so people can put it on their calendar? Yeah. So, okay. So tickets, uh, you can purchase tickets at tickets.lspuhall.ca. And they must be purchased before February 25th at noon in order to be included for that prize pack. Now, the show opens Thursday, February 22nd, 8 p.m. with a catered reception to follow. 
Friday, uh, we got Friday, February 23rd, there's going to be a talk back after the show and a Sanka set before the show. We also have Pick Your Prices tickets available for that Friday show. And then on Saturday, February 24th, that's the live stream. Um, and there's also going to be a live audio description available. And then closing out on uh, Sunday, February 25th at 2 p.m., we have a relaxed performance for anybody who's a little bit more uh, sensory um, uh, sensitive. Sounds great, and it's simple to just go lspuhall.ca to get your tickets there. And if I won that photo shoot at Steel Cut, they'd find out just how malleable and fiery I can be. That's right. That's right, especially during Heart Month. Marie, great to have you on the show. Break a leg. Oh, thank you so much, Patty. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Marie Pike, director and playwright of The Heart Play. Let's take a break. When we come back, Tony's in the queue. Let's talk about the Recreational Food Fishery Petition. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Oh, just uh, wanted to speak about the petition that uh, is going, Mr. Graham Wood put up uh, on the recreation fishery. Yep. Um, as you know, I guess you, 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 I, I think you follow it <laughs> pretty good. Uh, back in the fall, uh, the CFO reassessed uh, the, the card situation, and the lower reference point was moved, uh, and and therefore we're now in the cost zone uh, with the with, uh, card resource. And it seems to me like, uh, well, the car, we're in the cost zone, we're still in the rebuilding plan. But it seems to me like there's a lot of people uh, who think, well, you know, it's time to open it up and uh, and get at it, right? But I, I don't think that's the case. But in regard to the petition that Mr. Wood uh, has out, I, I think there's a, there's a bit much that uh, what he's looking for. Uh, the recreation fishery now is uh, 39 days. So if, if you round that up to 40 days, just to make the math simple, uh, five fish a day, and you've got 200 fish. And DFO has acknowledged that uh, the recreation fishery catch larger fish than the stewardship fishery. And uh, here in this community, it's uh, pretty active in the summer. You know, like last summer, uh, there was 56 speedboats tied to the water here, taking part in the recreation fishery. And then there were still some who used to travel from further up the bay and bring their, bring their boat on a trailer and fish for the day and then go back home <clears throat> on Saturday or Sunday or maybe stay two days. And uh, <clears throat> if, you're, if you're hitching 200 fish and you can use an average of, because they're catching large fish, so use an average of 10 pounds, that's 2,000 pounds of fish per person. And if you're if you're getting a thirty percent yield on uh, on fillets, you're you you've got six hundred pound of fillets. Now I don't know anyone in this community or any I think anywhere that would eat six hundred any family that would eat six hundred pound of fillets in twelve months. 
Yeah, no, let's just go back to the beginning because I think that's an important part of the conversation here is the modeling that has been changed for the Northern Cod Stock and 2J3KL. So yeah. they were using data from the last 70 years. So they they started beginning back in 1983 to do a, to assess the strength of the stock. Now they're going back as far as 1954, I believe, was the date. And so consequently, yeah. they've changed the label on uh, the risk assessment. But yeah. the, I think the big problem here, Tony, is that I don't think we really know how many fish are taken out in the recreational food fishery. You know, we can have anecdotal evidence, and I see a certain frequency of, you know, like I mentioned freely, I've got a couple of buddies that go out a lot throughout the course of the 39 days when the weather permits. But I think, like, when the FFAW are saying that, you know, the FO needs to do a better job of monitoring the food fishery, I think that's not a bad idea. And it's not to clamp down on people who are willing and wanting to go. If they have the time on the 39 days, if the weather's conducive, to go out and get what they're allowed to get, fair enough. But if we don't really know how many people are going out and we don't really know how many fish they take, then we're having a debate based, based on just guesses. And guesses probably lead to poor policy decisions. So, you know, people don't like to hear this, but just for once and for all, to put some numbers in context, maybe if DFO did monitor a little closer and we knew how many people participated in the fishery and how many fish they took, then we could have a debate based on concrete numbers. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you, Patty. That's, that's right, and that's, you basically covered a, a fair bit of what I was going to say, <laughs> but th- that, that's the problem. Uh, when, this, when, the low, when the lower reference point changed, it didn't put any more fish in the water. No, it, it didn't. Just, <laughs> it just said we're at a low, we're, we're, we're moved from critical zone to conscious zone and everyone understands what cautious means is you proceed with caution you don't open it up and let it go crazy and this recreation fishery as you just said TFO don't know how many and I don't or you don't know how many people is participating we don't know how much fish is coming out of the water and and the and the comment the reason why I called was Mr. Wood was on with you last week and made the comment that what comes out of the, what fish is caught in the recreation fishery is insignificant. Now that can be further from the truth. Because here in this community, we like I said, we have fifty six boats that were moored to the water. That, that was residents and people from other communities who come and enjoy a day on the water. I'm not against people in going out and getting fish for the winter for their family and friends. I'm not against that. I, I participate. I take people out and my friends and my family and we enjoy the day, have a good laugh, we come in and we clean up the fish and they take the fish and bring it home. I wait until September month when the when the when I'm into the stewardship fishery and get some fish for the winter for myself. But the thing that's happening is we got people here in the community that go out on two or three weekends or and get and they got enough fish for themselves for their family and they enjoy the day a nice calm day on the water sunny day and <clears throat> and then they take up the boat but we've got a number of people who go fishing under the recreation fishery three people in a boat and they go out six o'clock in the morning by lunchtime they got two or three trips in fishery shows up fisheries 
Central Fishing Protection. They come down around the community and they check a few people that, that, are, that are going in and coming in and just hang around for an hour or so and then they leave. I mean, if they had the Mexican army <laughs> or any of the Chinese army, you wouldn't, you wouldn't keep the tabs on this because every community in, in, in Newfoundland have people who like to go fishing and when the weather is good, their boats are out and they're fishing. DFO can't cover all of the, all of the communities. No. They do, spot, they do spot checks and in those spot checks, they've mad people who have been going out more than once or who have been bringing in more fish than they're allowed. So we do know what's happening. We just don't know to what magnitude. Yeah, and but add to that, you know, there's some confusion about what you're allowed to catch as well. So, you know, the, as we always say, so it's five fish, five fish per person, 15 per boat. But then DFO has said themselves in an email that if there's five of us in a vessel that can handle five and we come in with five fish each, no one's going to get in trouble, so to speak. So no. it, which way is it? So DFO is a little bit yeah. unclear on this stuff. My suggestion, like people hate to hear it. I got a bunch of saucy emails overnight saying, I'm not using a logbook. I hate the tag idea. But I think, you know, just real numbers and data data to be compiled can make for a better decision here. And secondly, you know, if the worry is that there's so many days potentially throughout the 39 allowed where the weather's not good and so people don't want to take a chance or maybe unfortunately some will take a chance, my thought would be if that's one of the big concerns, so let's say in the first two weekends of fishing and there was only there was two days where it was really unsafe to go out let's add two days to the end you know let's make sure that people had a legitimate 39 days to get on the water at the very least that would be fair you know i don't know if expanding to 90 days is the right idea and dfo does a pretty poor job monitoring because they can't be in every bay they can't be up against every wharf so i don't know but i'd like to have some real numbers to consider and i think you're on the right track tony yeah, and, and and I agree with you, and, and and I think to expand it to ninety days is is uh, you know it's it's not it's not economical for for the fishery. If if people and I hear it and you hear it a lot that it's their God given right to fish and they don't want to do log books and they don't want to do this and don't want to do that. Well, why wouldn't they? If they care about the resource. And if they want the resource to continue for their children and grandchildren, why wouldn't they want to know how much fish is coming out of the water? The people who don't want to do a logbook and don't want to do to 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 know to let anyone know how much fish they're catching, that is probably the people who are breaking the rules. And when it comes to the the regulation that they put in place. I heard the lady, and I've talked to people from DFO. <clears throat> the regulation was put in for safety. 15, f- 15 fish for a boat, therefore there'll be three people in a boat. The reason they did that was I remember back a number of years ago, before they put that rule in, there was a there was a boatman out of St. Phillips, a 15-foot aluminum boat with a man and wife and two children. And they got rescued by the other boats that was in the area of fishing. And the reason what happened was there was too many people in that boat. And thank God there was boat there was boats in the area and took them out of the water when the boat swamped. So if not, there would have been a tragedy. And and 
and people, like you said, are making bad decisions and going out in bad weather. What happens here is if Saturday is a bad day, and on Sunday is a good day, there's a good there's a good chance that most people are going to go two trips, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. The, I call them the legitimate people, but then we got other people who, and it's happening in other communities because I got. I got friends from Trapassi right to to the Labrador, and the Labrador is not happening. But it, around Newfoundland, we've got people who are abusing this and have turned it into a commercial black market fishery. And that, DFO, that's DFO's fault. They're they're not they're not monitoring it. <clears throat> the politicians don't want to touch it. Uh, Mr. Small, down, down on the Bay of Earth Peninsula, Mr. Small is promoting this, promoting this, uh, this, this, this uh, uh, expanding the, the recreation fishery. Uh, we don't have any science and a science update since four, three or four years. There will be one this spring, but all this caution is thrown to the wind. That's all gone. Don't worry about that. Let's go ahead and get more fish. Yeah. Get more fish out of the water. There's been very little science <clears throat> science done in the commercial harvest anyway in the last number of years with the science vessels that have been out of commission waiting yeah. for parts, retrofits, and all the rest. And, you know, DFO, it's sort of one in your cake and eat it too. Because if we're talking about the precautionary approach, then that's when there's, you know, caution because of scientific uncertainty. Well, we have zero certainty in the recreational food fishery. Zero. None. Anecdotal evidence and no more, no less. Uh, Tony, i got to get to the break, but I appreciate the time and the call. And you mentioned all the speedboats tied up at your wharf in your community. What community is that? Beatty Verd. Beatty Verd. Okay. It's yeah. good to have you on the yeah. show. Anyway, thanks for uh, the opportunity, and uh, have a good day. The same to you. Stay in touch, Tony. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, Bye. uh, let's get that break in. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Mr. Lush. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How about you? I'm doing okay. I just phoned to get your opinion on this Oak Island thing. The show? Yes, I phoned to get your opinion on what happened on Oak Island. Well, I'm not really up to speed exactly what happens on that show. I used to watch it a little bit uh, some while back, but the, every episode felt very similar to me, so I kind of lost touch with it. Uh, what happened? Well, no, nothing, nothing serious happened. I just uh, got my opinion on it. Is I think they should leave Oak Island alone. Why is that? Well, I think there could be something very religious buried there and uh, not to be disturbed because they, they buried it so deep and with so many booby traps and flood tunnels, they meant for it not to be touched. That's true. I mean, I do know that the rumors are that there's a Captain Kidd's treasure buried there. And uh, all the booby traps are really quite fascinating. With all the technology this day and age, the inability to find whatever might be there is really quite something else. So there are stories about, you know, precious manuscripts, religious artifacts. Even some of the jewels belong to Marie Antoinette, I think, is part of the rumor as to what might be there. It's been a privately owned island for a long time. Treasure hunters have been at this for a very, very long time. And, of course, Captain Kidd sailed the oceans what in the 1700s so this rumor and story has been going on forever yeah but i'm sure captain kidd wasn't stupid enough to bury a treasure 120 feet in the ground <laughs> yeah no i'm just saying what the rumors are about obviously he wasn't coming back for it 
No, probably not when it's buried to that extent. And it's even changed names many times. You know, initially it was Smith's Isle, and then I think it went to Gloucester Isle, and it's changed hands. It's been privately owned. It's in Lunenburg County, right? That's where Oak Island is? Yeah, I think it should be left alone, to be honest with you. Okay. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time, Mr. Lush. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. You know, when it comes to religious artifacts, I don't. Uh, there's probably a torn sentiment out there because if something can be found and authenticated and we understand uh, where it came from, why it was where it was found, maybe to be on display somewhere or another, whether it be in St. Peter's or at the Vatican in the museum. And if, I don't know if you've ever been to the Vatican Museum, but that's just... It's incredible what's in there. Anyway, so that's an interesting call. Oak Island. I don't know much about it. I kind of gave up on the show. But I know they've been searching for quite a long time. Let's go go to line number three. Bill, you're on the air. Hi, Bill. Oh, hey. How you doing? Doing great. How about you? Good. Uh, you want to make a quick call today. Uh, we, uh, I, I haven't had a chance, and I, if, correct me if this topic has already been brought up, but it has to do with the uh, with the uh, wind turbine hydrogen project in central Newfoundland. I know I've heard lots of uh, debate on different things, but uh, I wanted to bring this to the table. So about a year and a half to two years ago, the provincial government, uh, right in the middle of the project in central Newfoundland, land uh, in New, in the New Bay Road area is uh, an area called New Bay Pond. It's about 32 kilometers from, from Grand Falls. Uh, it's been a cabin development area for probably the last 20 years. They've had three phases opened up. And about a year and a half ago, the provincial government opened up a fourth phase and offered 60 cabin lots for sale, not for lease. Uh, approximately uh, an acre a little bit larger each cabin lot 40 of them were waterside and 20 of them were not and uh, they came uh, surveyed and had a septic survey done and the cost was about 18 to 22 thousand dollars per cabin lot depending on size and location they had a public draw and to get your name into the draw you had to uh, uh, pay 25 dollars and you could, you know, put as many family members into the draw if you wanted. If you wanted to put 10 uh, names in to, for the chance to get a family uh, member to uh, get drawn and be able to pick a lot, you could. So the 60 lots were sold. They had thousands of people put their money in. So they made, you know, tens and $20,000 on the application process. They then sold 60 building lots at approximately eighteen to $20,000 each. You can do the math on that. We're in the millions. Mm -hmm. They never ever disclosed that there was a project uh, being developed with uh, windmills. So right now I have one of these blocks, waterfront looking across the lake. We were going to build a retirement cabin there. And at the latest um, meeting in Botwood, the map has come out and that pond, which is a beautiful pond, and by the way, has three areas of developed zones where people have already put in, you know, major uh, cabin developments for their own personal use, is now going to be surrounded by over 400 windmills, and each windmill is going to have approximately a square acre of clear cut. Not on, not, not. And that's not taking into consideration the land development, the road development, 
the traffic and so on and so forth because it's a channel from New Bay Pond directly to Botwood to get to the port. So they're going to open up the road there. So my, my problem with all this is the government knew this. This has been an ongoing project for the last three or four years, and they unloaded land to unsuspecting taxpayers in a draw and made millions of dollars and never disclosed that there was a project in development for this particular area. They wanted to sell off the land before the project was announced. A couple of questions for you. That's ever been brought up. No, it, it hasn't been, and I'm glad you did, because the bid area for the Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation is about 30,000 hectares. But, of course, as you point out, rightfully so, it doesn't include all the additional development, whether it be clear-cutting and the roads being established. When did the lottery close for the cabin country? Uh, I, I would have to go back and look at my dates, but I mean, we we we've got involved in the lottery process and closed the purchase about a year and a half ago. Okay, and so that would be in pretty close proximity to when Exploits Valley was considering Botwood as the hub for their green hydrogen ammonia play. So that's really interesting tangle here. And when you say surrounded. Describe what you mean by surrounded. Like, would you be in the middle of the field of the wind turbines, or they'd be in close proximity to you? Or what does surrounded actually mean? In Kitty Vitty, in St. John's, and there's a house in uh, on basically close to the close to the water's edge, which there are. And if you were to look across from the pond where the entry is now. In a tentry, you see three or four hundred windmills. Uh, they have a buffer zone around the pond, so many meters away from the water's edge. But after that, it's free game. So you know the the and so we uh, and you can get a map online and see this. the The pond is called New Bay Pond. It's a it's a beautiful pond about seven kilometers long, and that whole area is the pond itself uh, with the buffer to the water's edge excluded is going to be surrounded on both sides, predominantly on the Botwood side, right up to the buffer zone, but also behind as well with four, I forget the actual number, but I think it's 420, 430 plus windmills. And these windmills are all the large windmills that they're saying are going to be, you know, the uh, the or, or greater than the Confederation building, a couple of hundred meters. So it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, unbelievable wrong in, in someone's. I mean, I have it from good authority that this was in the process and I found out after the fact uh, you know, when the land was being sold. So, I mean, it, it's like the, the government knew there was going to be a development there, but they didn't disclose this. So we were purchasing land uh, to build a retirement cabin, uh, you know, in an area close to Grand Falls, because it, 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 it's one of the things you have to, uh, it's my former hometown, and it's one of the things you have to take into consideration when you get to a certain age. You don't want to be out uh, isolated somewhere, but the beauty of this one was we could have a cabin, we'd be 20, 30 kilometers from a major center and from a hospital and so on and so forth as you get up in age, so we didn't mind building a cabin there. Now, I've invested $20,000 in a block of land where I really don't want to develop it and have, you know, uh, my view at, uh, off my cabin deck of, uh, of three or 400 windmills staring at me and the noise that goes along with it. But it's also made the cabin land, um, it, it devalued it. Oh, so now I've, I've invested money into a piece of land I can't sell. So, I, I mean, I, I urge you to go on their site and, and look up the development. And they've got the corridor, you know, going east 
from uh, from New Bay Pond, surrounding New Bay Pond, and right down into uh, into Point Lemington into, and into Botwood. And none of this was, diclo- was disclosed by the provincial government. Uh, so, you know, I do know that there were 60 cabin lots approximately up for sale. I think they did sell about 55 of them. There was a couple that were not waterfront people didn't want. And they had, you know, thousands of applications at $25 a pop. So they, they made, you know, $25,000, $35,000 there. Uh, they, they, we're talking over a million, maybe $2 million that the government has, has gotten from this land sale. Uh, and they didn't disclose facts about uh, a development in the area. Have you gone to government with this complaint and whether or not there's any redress available? We're working on it, you know, and I just wanted to bring it out there because I know there is a site that somebody uh, put me on towards with with regards to the wind turbine development, uh, and um, you know, and and it's 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 disturbing in so many ways. I mean, the fact that they're going to put so many um, windmills in an area where there's already been for the last twenty years not only cabin developments, but there's a major international um, you know outfitting company in that area that's going to be basically destroyed hunting and fishing lodge two lodges and uh, you know one of the other things that disturbs me is that the if you look at the plans for europe when they put these wind turbines in they are doing as minimalistic an approach to putting them in as possible whereas in newfoundland the plan right now that i've seen and i could be corrected i could be wrong you know misinformation is always out there but we're looking at a square acre of land to be clear cut for each each windmill. So you're looking at 400 windmills. You're, you're looking at a destruction just cut of 400 square acres. And as, you know, I could be corrected on that. But my my thought on that is, of course, uh, compared to Europe, which is very minimalistic, which is like less than a half a square acre per windmill. Uh, I'm assuming that the clear cut of such a major piece of land is going to incorporate a larger number of um, of initial jobs to be able for the government to say, well, we've employed X number of people, and we're doing that because we're clear cutting such a large piece of land, you know, basically a make work project. Instead of instead of creating a half an acre of clear cut for each windmill, I'm going to create an acre. I can employ more people for longer and not realizing that the effect it has on an environmental area, you know, and where, where it is. So uh, very disturbed, very upset um, and uh, wanted to put it out there because not only are there 40 or 50 people that, you know, got into this process in the last phase and i do know like some people went ahead no i haven't done it because it was a a retirement project but i know some people have already clear-cut their land they've already you know poured foundations they've already built small cabins um, on the land that was sold a year and a half to two years ago plus the first three phases of new bay pond has been there for Oh my goodness! I, I wouldn't even hazard to say, but 20 or 30 years. The government knew this was a, you know, a, a recreational cabin area when they when they took it on. New Bay Pond is an extremely popular uh, area. I grew up in Grand Falls. It, you know, it's been like this for the last 70 years. It's been a, a beautiful area to go to, okay. and uh, so they okay. know that people have an investment there already. You know, some three and four hundred thousand dollars in, well, in summer homes, and right, it's it's just it's disturbing. I I appreciate the. 
uh, call this morning and the uh, the topic because I wasn't aware of this, but now that I am, I will check out that map and I will follow up because if government was willing to sell the property without full disclosure, which is part and parcel of selling, uh, making a financial transaction regarding real estate, including just undeveloped land, let me see what I can find out, but I appreciate you putting this in my ear this morning. I appreciate your time, and if you do a little bit of deep diving, or if you want it, I have the pictures uh, from from the the presentation in Botwood. You can go on their website and get them. But if not, I can forward them to you, and you can actually see the development, how it rings the land and and the pond, and and exactly where it is. It's it's destroyed a uh, a beautiful area, but more so for me, I, I'm getting a vibe, and I don't want I hate to come out and and you know accuse, but there's too many. Uh, too, too many arrows pointing to the fact that it was a little bit underhanded. So, it, it certainly doesn't sound you. completely above board. Bill, I'm off to the news, but I appreciate your time. Thank you for yours. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, and just for, you know, just for context, so if the wind turbines were posed at about 200 meters or taller, the Confederation building is 64 meters. 200 meters is about 650-odd feet. Signal Hill is, a, is 167 meters from sea level. That's how tall it is. And these windmills are taller than that. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Charlie, you're on the air. Patty, I'd like to speak about the... Uh, there was one, one guy there on earlier about uh, movie stars and uh, carbon uh, uh, footprint and yeah. so on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know there's hypocrisy everywhere, but from my observations over the years, I think the the 1%, especially business types, and I know some of the movie stars are in that category, I think they're the biggest problem as far as uh, carbon footprint and uh, uh, despoiling our atmosphere and the planet. There's a lot of uh, these people like Sean Penn and uh, Sam Malone, that guy used to come on Cheers, and others that have done uh, great work. I would put Taylor Swift, I guess, in that as well. And uh, a lot of them do travel. They, they, as far as I know, if they're environmentally conscious at all, they buy carbon offsets, which means they're planting trees and that uh, elsewhere and other uh, uh, positive things. So I think they're an easy target, and I would say that if he concentrated on the guy who called on types like Musk, who believes that uh, uh, the world should have more people, maybe to buy more of his cars, I don't know, and Black, Conrad Black, who doesn't uh, understand climate change, and Jeremy Diamond, the uh, uh, J.P. Morgan guy who says that Trump is right in so many things, and I can go on and on, uh, Peter Thiel, and... Anyway, um, that's just uh, a, an off-the-cuff comment. Uh, as I said, I think the others are too easy a target sometimes. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, the carbon offset, I think, is a curious tool. Now, it does display some consciousness regarding your own emission or your own footprint, but it doesn't lead to a net reduction in emissions entering the atmosphere. It's simply you pay someone else to pollute less. You know, So whether it be investment in a, a bog for carbon sequestration or for planting of trees or what have you, but it doesn't, doesn't lead to a net reduction. So it's basically just because you have the wherewithal and the means that you'll pay someone else in some sort of project or individual to pollute less so that you can pollute more. So, 
I guess it's a bit of feel good, but at, at, at least they're offsetting. It's it's not a total uh, uh, one-sided thing as many people, like your previous caller suggested. That's all I'm saying. I I agree. It's not the best solution. <laughs> best solution is, is don't travel as much. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on out there, and so yeah. you know whether it be Charlie Angus and his bill aimed at uh, advertisements coming from fossil fuel companies, very much like back in the 90s regarding tobacco products and stuff. Not to say Mr. Angus on the right track, because I think that's a bit over the top. But, you know, I still have questions about carbon sequestration. I still have questions about carbon capture. Because if you just look back to some of the last environmental gatherings, the COP meetings, there was huge numbers of lobbyists, huge numbers of representatives coming from oil and gas companies. And their number one theme and message that uh, meeting was carbon capture. If the oil companies like it as much as they seemingly do, then it really feels like just an opportunity to greenwash the industry and allow them to keep going with the so-called social license because they're going to capture the carbon. In one hand, it's absolutely admitting out loud that the product that they produce is a huge problem regarding carbon. So we're going to capture it, and we're going to bury it, or we're going to ingest, uh, inject it into the, the basalt rock formations off the Pacific coast of Canada, or put it down in depleted oil wells or something. So it's kind of greenwashing the industry again. I think the same thing can be said for carbon offset, to be honest with you. I know, I understand, and I get your point, but there really is a big load of greenwashing on the go out through these days. Yes, carbon, carbon capture, sequestration... It's being done on small levels around the world. That's an excuse to do nothing and uh, a technological solution that that I noticed the uh, uh, conservative guy is promoting across Canada. This this is totally out to lunch because these kinds of things capturing, at best they'll get one or two percent, and, and and that won't change in in the immediate future, like ten, twelve years at all. So that's I agree totally with you on on. on but now yeah. the amount they can capture really depends on the investment in the technology and whether it's captured at source and those types of things and how far from the source will it be injected, whether it be into a depleted oil well or just right into the rock. Now, curiously, off the coast of uh, the Pacific coast to Canada, injecting it into the basalt rock formations in 25 years it turns into rock. So can it capture more than 1%? Apparently so. So we spoke with the lead engineer with the $6 million that the provincial government put forward to examine this over the course of, I think, two or three years. It depends on how much you want to invest as to what percentage you can capture. It's about as effective as the electric car solution that many people think is the be-all and end-all. It's not. I'm not saying it's not a step, but as far as looking at the overall problem, both those would be, uh, in my mind, about the same. But anyway, uh, the other one I want to get to, uh, uh, you hear people blaming government for poverty and homelessness, and uh, they've been doing that since I've been following politics, since the 50s. I think what a lot of people uh, don't recognize is that a lot of problems are intractable. There's really no what we call solution that they're suddenly gone or will be gone over 10, 20, 30 years. A lot of problems we can only manage. And I, I would look on, and, on housing and poverty and mental illness and so on as, as at least three of these. Uh, not saying we can't manage them better and do more. I, I, I think we can, but uh, let's let's not go talking about final solutions for, for any of these things, right? There's no such thing as a final solution. There's no silver bullet to deal with poverty. But government does play a role here. I mean, the yeah. inequity between the rich and the poor and that growing divide is absolutely massive. Then you talk about things that are maybe people don't give much uh, attention to, but just look at some of the segments of society that 
find themselves living in poverty and or they're working poor. Whether it be uh, folks with accessibility needs and the inability to get a job, whether it be people who are aged and now the concept of ageism where they can't get back into the workforce because they've been deemed now so-called all of a sudden not hireable or useless or whatever more people want to attach to it. So there's all kinds of things regarding poverty and interaction with healthcare, poverty and interaction with the criminal justice system. So government does play an active role, but I agree with your summary point is that there's not one solution. There's not one solution to anything, if we're being honest. Every issue that governments tackle with or societal issues are complicated. And there's a hundred moving parts to some of the more complex issues that we're trying to deal with. So again, I'll just, this only my opinion. If you think that the politician you support or the political party you support has all the answers to any question, any question, you're wrong. You're just 100% wrong because good ideas are across the political spectrum. And whoever tells you, I got the idea that's going to solve X, Y, or Z, they're feeding you a load of malarkey. Yeah, that, 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 that would be what Trump does, right? Well, I think it's a pretty common political tool. Some people and parties are worse at it or more repeat offenders than others, but, yeah. The, you, you, know, you, you just want to solve the Middle East, and North Korea wouldn't have nuclear weapons, and you can go on and on. But anyway, last point I want to make on, on Oak Island, on a lighter note. I, as I told you before, I visited Oak Island uh, way back in the 60s. I've been following it, read several books, and uh, following that series, although we don't get it now. i got to have somebody in St. John's tape it. But whoever buried that stuff down there, stuff was buried at the 90-hundred-foot level, uh, tunnels uh, basically going everywhere, because the wood has been carbon-dated going way, way back. Somebody buried something, though, that it was very valuable. They came up with a way that you couldn't get at it very easily with the flood tunnels and so on. So I hope that uh, those guys get to the bottom of it. There were many groups involved in Oak Island. That's, that's the strange part about it. I'm more interested in, in what happened there, the history of it. Uh, there was at least six groups that they've uh, found evidence of. But anyway, uh, I hope they keep it up, and I hope they find something. Yeah, I mean, people are fascinated with the concept of a buried treasure, whether it be Spanish doubloons to a religious artifact or, you know, the scroll. Like, who knows what's down there? Some people might think if, it's, if it entails any religious artifacts, leave it alone for th- their own personal reasons. But I'd be curious if they ever found it, what it entailed. Like, imagine if there's a, a treasure chest full of Marie Antoinette's jewels. That's just pretty interesting, right? Anyway. Imagine, yeah, that's right. Imagine if it was happening in some part of Newfoundland. I mean, we'd be all over it. There'd be everybody wanting to say, what the hell happened there uh, uh, two centuries or three centuries ago, you know? Anyway, Fair. that's all i got to say this morning. Appreciate the time, Charlie. Okay, sir. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's get a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. So, line number two, Barry, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Thanks, Thanks for taking my call. You no hear me okay? Not, uh, yeah, pretty good. Go ahead. Yeah, any talk about the food fishery? I can't. I couldn't help but bite my tongue for a while, but now I had to let it go. Um, talk about the uh, petition before I do, though, Patty. A little history about the food fishery. Uh, when it first started, there was uh, it was under quite a lot of restraints. Uh, they had a tag system for a while, which I think two years, which didn't work. Uh, and then I believe in 2015. I think that's the correct date. Judy Foote, before she became uh, lieutenant governor, made an announcement at the uh, on the wharf in Argentia, I believe, that the uh, DFO was changing the uh, date system of the food fishery. As everybody knows, it used to be uh, three weeks in the summer and a week in the fall. She came when she came out. She announced that that would stay the same, but also though, every weekend in July and August would be open. 
And for the most part, Paddy, most people like that idea. Now, however, uh, then all of a sudden, uh, not all of a sudden, but then a year or two years later, the DFO uh, announced a cutback to the quota for commercial fishery. And, of course, then the uh, food fishery took a hit to that as well and in form of we lost those three weeks. Uh, brings to today current now, talk about this new petition that's on the go. Uh, you know, I, I uh, take my hat off to Graham for putting it together, although... Uh, and I'm, I'm not attacking Graham on uh, the message that he's saying. Uh, the petition is stating that uh, fishery food for show opens from, I believe, 1st of July, Patty, to 1st of October. Yeah, that's the suggestion. I think I think that's too ambitious. I don't think that DFO is ever going to open the food fishery open like that again. Uh, another point on it, though, he says that limit to, limit the limit limit the boat limit to 20 fish. Now, Patty, that's going against the grain of what I uncovered uh, for the past couple of years about the boat limit, and that's five fish per person. So now, if it, you know, you have a boat that can safely take five people instead of 25 fish, if that fish goes through as it is, it'd be only 20 fish. And as well, the, uh, I think it's taking a step back. I think that a better solution, a better suggestion for that petition would have been to uh, look for the three weeks back in the summer and then have the weekends in June, July and August, the three weeks in the summer and week in the fall. And that week in the fall, Patty, that's usually a write-off, and I think that you know something needs to be done with that week in the fall as well. I don't know where the sweet spot would be. I think the petition will be viewed as overshooting, overambitious. If the big concern that I hear people share, and I think this is fair, is that, you know, when it feels like there's so few days, because not everybody's available all 39 days either, so let's be realistic. You know, there's a lot of things going on in people's busy lives. It's not always an opportunity to get out on the water to catch a few cod. So if the concept is bad weather... If the first weekend is deemed unsafe to go, then add a weekend at the end. Like, just make sure that the 39 days are actually 39 days of fishable, uh, fair weather so that we can address that concern by simply adding days when days have been deemed unsafe. And there's lots of ways to deem the weather unsafe for getting out for the recreational food fishery. Now, there's a difference between going out in your 14-foot aluminum boat versus going out in your 40-footer. So, I don't know what the actual target would be or the measure of the wind or the height of the sea, but there's got to be a way to accommodate that bad weather concern. Well, two points come to mind about that, Patty. That is, uh, on your second uh, point here, uh, it's it's the operator of the watercraft who is totally responsible for. You're breaking up, Barry. I can't hear you anymore. Can you hear me now? A little better. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so Patty, it's up it's up to the uh, the owner or operator of the boat to decide if it's safe to go out or not. And that responsibility should lay on that person and not on, on everybody. Um, the uh, the season dates, uh, you know, it, I, I don't know. It just seems it's, it, it just seems that it was rushed and it wasn't thought about that well. And again, that's not no reflection on Graham or anything like that, but, you know, I'd say my opinion. 
for the uh, for the you, you know the caller was talking, Patty, about the DFO uh, trying to keep track of how much fish is actually caught. Well, that's a good idea, and something that I've suggested in the past as well. Is have dock monitors and this and that to get some kind of figure on how much how much fish is being caught during food fishery. It's been acknowledged by both DFO and private people that it's very very little, and you indicate there it's more around one percent. But it would be good, and I agree that there needs to be some kind of uh, I don't know, tracking of, of what's coming in to be able to then look back in, in past years and see some kind of estimate or some kind of trend what what's happening with the uh, with the catfish in the summertime. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been taking some pretty heavy swats about even suggesting there might be an opportunity here to get some actual info to add to the debate because the 1% has been an anecdotal number that's been thrown around. Is it accurate? I have no earthly idea. I don't think anybody does. But unless we have actual data, then we're just going to go back and forth and it's going to end up with some sort of uh, poorly informed decision that is probably not going to result in good policy. Uh, Patty, I believe that you are right, sir. And and the thing, the thing is, too, though, Patty, is that, you know, uh, what, what's wrong with DFO? Why why, why do we have to grab, travel and beg just, just, to, just to get them to do some monitoring? It's the same thing with the uh, with the, uh, the fishery gardens, which is another battle. But here we are, instead of looking for more fish, we're looking for more protection, more conservation measures. And DFO is just ignoring us. And same thing with this, you know, they're saying that they need some kind of a figure to put put uh, on the food fishery, but yet they don't want to do it. And, Patty, wouldn't it be better to have dockside monitors, uh, not on every wharf, of course, but in geographical regions, rather than sending up that plane buzzing around? How, how expensive is that plane by DFO officials and everything else? Yeah, and, and it's hard to count. It's hard to count how many cotter in the boat from the sky. Say? It's hard to count how many cotter in the boat from the sky. Well, logistically speaking. Yeah. Uh, final thought to you, Barry, before I have to go. Well, uh, myself uh, on another uh, another subject, uh, Patty, myself and Paul White are going to begin our, our lobby effort again. Uh, it took us right to the, to the 11th hour during the summer past for DFO to acknowledge that they should hire around the uh, fishery, fishery guardians for an extra four weeks. We're, we're asking for longer. But I'd like to see them t- put some kind of thing in, into effect now that would say that they're going to have the extra staff on or the staff held on for extra time instead of myself and Paul White battling and struggling at the 11th hour again to try to get DFO to do what they should be doing in the first place. My God, Patty, how frustrating is it? Uh, it is frustrating, <laughs> and it's an annual frustration that just seemingly does not get addressed or attended to. Uh, Barry, I'm late for the break, but I appreciate your time, sir. Hey, just one more thought. Quick. Why is it that they can? Why is it that we have to wait every year for the announcement of the food fishery right into the end of May or June? We've been battling the same thing for the uh, for the uh, recreational Atlantic salmon, and now the TFO has relinquished and put out the dates and bag and foot. They know what it's going to be well in advance. Why do they why do they hold off and 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 hide it from us for less better term? No earthly idea. And it's the same thing I think even when we talk about uh, commercial dates and tax and IQs, you know, sometimes it just is a little bit late in the day to be fully prepared to execute or to prosecute the fishery. Uh, Barry, I do have to go this time though, but you stay in touch. 
I understand, Patty. Thank you for your time, and as always, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure, sir. Take care. Bye bye. All right, let's uh, go ahead and take a break. When we come back, international students don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills. That's Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Thanks so much, Pat. It's a beautiful day in here in Cornerbrook. Lucky. But uh, in solidarity with all of my East Coast friends, I am just bought a load of storm chips and all the necessary uh, gear to settle back, and I'm I'm with you, brothers and sisters. I'm with you. I'm enjoying my storm chips, even though it's a beautiful day here in the, in the winter's wonderland of Cornerbrook and West Coast. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting in out of it today, to be honest. It looks pretty nasty out there now. <laughs> anyway, listen, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to touch base with you. Uh, you and I both tried to have a conversation, a, a stronger conversation about uh, international uh, students and uh, the process the federal government has now instituted uh, as a result of some really, really serious concerns that Mark Miller, the federal minister responsible for uh, permitting, for uh, granting visas to international students who want to come to Canada to receive an education, to study, um, there's um, some advantages to Newfoundland and Labrador, but also I wanted to provide some assurances to everyone that it is not the intention of, of, of governments or, or of, of educational institutions to suddenly say, let's come on, let's, let's, um, let's just start rolling in with more and more and more international students. If we're not ready for them, what we really need to do is prepare. And that's really the basis of the conversation that I wanted to have with you. Yeah. I mean, is part of me thinks, you know, the 35% reduction in the amount of student visas allowed is kind of scapegoating international students for the housing crisis. Last year, I think there was about 807,000 807, international students in the country. You know, people will make the financial argument, the contribution of some $36 billion by international students uh, nationwide. But I don't think it's 100% wrong to understand that housing is a nuanced concern. It's not just one factor. Like some people will lean on immigration, period, as being the only problem in housing. Well, we've got a systemic issue with housing. We've got a structural issue with housing. We've changed the way we think about housing. Now it's all about an economic benchmark about housing starts. It's the biggest piece of equity I'll ever have. GDP contribution in the housing world versus a place to live. So there's a lot more to it than simply saying, well, if you don't stop immigration, the housing crisis is only going to get worse. Housing starts last year in this country were about 233,515, something like that. The average number of people living in a house in Canada is about 2.45 people. So inter- immigration was actually kept up with. If we're talking about 2.45 people living in 233,000 plus homes, that covers the immigration number. So we've just got to be a little bit more stand back and consider all the angles versus saying, well, it's just one thing. Now, I think, you know, there's not a problem with pumping the brakes a little bit to get ahead of the housing crunch a little bit more. And yes, that would be an immigration-related number, uh, matter, but it's not just all immigration. But that's unfortunately how the political conversation sounds. Yeah, well, you know, it's um, you're 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 not wrong at all. It's to do anything less than be responsible to look at the circumstances that um, that are that are here present in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our province, uh, as as Mark Miller did, the federal minister did across the country. You know, housing, there is no such thing as one single solitary housing market for which everybody competes towards. Um, there are many, many, many housing markets, uh, from low-income social housing to, to, to a different category, which is student housing, in particular international student housing, to high-income housing, um, to all, like, there are many, many markets. 
related to housing and not are all the same. And one one intervention or one change in circumstance in one area of our society does not affect the entire housing market. But what you really need to do is understand what is the housing market of economic immigrants, as an example, those who actually have, are coming with a job already secured, bringing multiple member, members of their family, already earning an income the day that they land here in Newfoundland and Labrador, already contributing to, um, to the tax base of our province and so on and so forth. So it's really, really important to always recognize that there is not one single solitary housing market to which everybody competes. And with that said, you know, Patty, let's examine what was the issue that the federal government, that Canada, uh, decided to tackle on January 22nd when Mark Miller announced new rules when it comes to uh, international students who apply and want to come to Canada. What were the rules? What was the circumstances that he applied on January 22nd? Because those are unique circumstances as well. What Mark Miller said, what the federal minister said, was that in Canada right now, we have some provinces uh, that are really, really doing an awful, awful job of supporting international students and, treat, and do an awful job of how they treat them once they arrive. And he specifically referred to puppy mills. That's how he described them. And he specifically said that British Columbia and Ontario are particularly egregious on this in, the, in this front because some of the post-secondary institutions there in those two provinces in particular, not only do they, are they set up in the equivalent of back alley or strip mall locations charging students $40,000 plus in tuition a year to take online courses from a, from a strip mall uh, in some city in southern Ontario or mainland British Columbia, using his analogies, his uh, descriptions, not mine, um, those provinces, he said, we've got to do something about it. And he was very, very frank about it. And he also said there are other provinces that are doing an incredible job, that are really regulating their post-secondary institutions, not only their public universities and public colleges, but their uh, private uh, career co uh, colleges as well. And clearly, Newfoundland and Labrador, Patty, is in the category of the latter. Uh, we charge, you know, Memorial University of Newfoundland charges international students the lowest tuitions uh, in the country. But it's not uh, necessarily the, about the, the the amount paid for tuition. It's the caliber of the education. So if we're talking puppy mill... It's the two. It's a balance between the two. Sure. But let's, you know, how about this? And I, I'm loath to oversimplify issues because that's probably a bad idea. But let's have a list of accredited colleges and universities that will be allowed to bring in an international student. How about start there? If that's the problem, you would have a natural decrease in, in, in international student visas as opposed to simply just picking a number out of thin air, 35%. Let's get a list accredited colleges and uh, universities and they are the only schools that will be allowed to bring in a student internationally and then we'll just see what that percentage looks like. Well, And that's what the federal government actually does. They actually have what's known as designated learning institutions. And uh, some of those designated learning institutions, how they control them, some of those designated learning institutions are allowed to grant a postgraduate once you, once the student graduates graduates from that institute from that college or or the campus or whatever, they can then get after graduation a post graduation work permit. 
Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador's designated learning institutions are Memorial University of Newfoundland, the College of the North Atlantic, Academy Canada, uh, Eastern uh, Eastern College, uh, uh, Keen uh, College, East, Eastern Academy. We've, you know, our uh, uh, Gander Flight Academy. Uh, we have very few, very few uh, federally designated learning institutions. Why? Because we don't have back alley strip mall learning institutions. In Ontario, there are 500 federally designated learning institutions. In British Columbia, there are 275 designated learning institutions. So I don't disagree with what you're saying at all. This is the purview of the federal government. Uh, But the bottom line here is that instead of being forced into a regulatory environment, Newfoundland and Labrador did the right thing for the right reasons. We, our private institutions, are the best in the country. Very quickly, I do have to go, but let's bounce back to housing for one second. You know, with all the contributing factors to the housing crisis across the country, there's one that gets some attention and focus. It's timing and permitting and cost. So if it takes forever and a day to identify a piece of property, whether it be uncleared land or a home, to renovate, to tear down, to rebuild, whatever, it takes too long. And there's a bunch of duplicity in the system here. The CFIB has given this province an F across the board for red tape reduction. So... In all fairness to the current government, I don't think there's been a whole lot done, whether it be at the municipal level, to really attend to this, and or at the provincial level. So how do you speak to that CFIBF in red tape reduction? Well, municipal fair, municipalities in our, in our province, same as across the entire country, they decide their zoning, uh, their, their zoning decisions are made within the municipal government themselves. So I don't think... But there's also issues, would, red tape and things even like Crown Land. So there's provincial interaction with this F. Oh, I do not disagree with that. Crown Lands is something that definitely needs to be tackled. You know, when I was, when I was minister responsible for Crown Lands, we were able to... Uh, take an 8,000 waiting list or uh, application base that was sitting in the queue sometimes for months and bring that down to near zero. Uh, We do have more work to do on Crown Lands. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And you will be seeing actions being taken on Crown Lands. Uh, But, you know, the whole totality of this is that I think what has to happen, and this is I'll go back to the student, to the international students. If Newfoundland and Labrador gets certainty if the final decision of the of ottawa about international students is with certainty that we can get this number in the future well then with that certainty with that guaranteed confidence uh not only can memorial and cna uh, but other private builders could go out and say listen we know that there will be this number of international students that one day can and will likely come to newfoundland and labrador there's a good business case to be made to start building student housing to charge reasonable rates market rates but to chart to build that housing to allow that to come that's what mark miller did is he promised every province of Canada and every territory that he would divide up the number of international students based on a per capita basis. Why did he do that? To make sure that international students go to the remarkable learning centers right across this entire country and spread that, that, that group of international students right across the entire country instead of just being centered in southern Ontario and mainland BC. We want to make sure 
Now, Minister Krista Howell, the Minister of Post-Secondary Education, she's in charge of this file. Uh, but my interest in, and her interest is to make sure that Mark Miller makes good on this so that we can grow our international student population here in our province responsibly as we have done. We have, we're the ones, we're the province that Mark Miller should be pointing to. Fair See enough. what happens when it gets done right. Fair I enough. Call out our federal MPs to make sure that Mark Miller's promise is, condu- is, is, is completed in the interest of of Newfoundland and Labrador. Fair enough. But you were the minister responsible for Crown Lands. You also moved one of the Crown Lands divisions to your own riding. And I don't think there was ever really a well-understood rationale as to why. Well, actually, the decision was taken before I was minister of Crown Lands. Uh, But the rationale was a very simple one. Crown Lands has uh, the most intimate uh, interaction between Crown Lands is with forestry and agriculture. And the forestry department and the agriculture department were always headquartered in Corner Brook. And so there was a cabinet decision to say to make sure that the efficiencies are created, the, the, the back and forth, the, the, the collision of staff, the, you know, the, the, the positive collision of staff in making good decisions, there was a decision to move Crown Lands side by side with forestry and agriculture. I still think that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Minister. All the best to you. God love. Uh, Jerry Burns, Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Bill, you're on the air. Morning. Good morning. Hi, I'm just taking out speaker. Uh, what's it like in there? Stormy. Yes, yeah, stormy right here. We're not, I don't think we got as much to that, though. Uh, Patty, I'll touch base now and change. I usually always only call for uh, municipal uh, matters, but I don't know if you remember last summer I called uh, while I was doing a construction project in the city, and uh, I was a little out of the element, and you asked to uh, to follow up when it got done. I was uh, it was neighbors, and I was building a fence. Do you remember this? Not particularly. No, I'm sorry. Okay, no, no, no worries at all. And, and uh, I was a little wound up because inside the urban environment, I didn't know. But uh, I'm never, I'm usually the least intelligent person anywhere I go, but it does me homework. And uh, after uh, a long time, I, re- I replaced the section of the girlfriend's fence because it was done a wind, wind damage, right? And the, and I'll I'll preamble with uh, there's always three sides to every story, and this particular set of neighbors uh, they have one two three four boundaries around their fence and they're only at war with four of them. Uh, so there's but anyway, long story short, it was just and I didn't even realize when I called you last year. That uh, the girlfriend's the, the section of fence uh, along that way. Uh, not only uh, she had paid for all of the entire fence and all of the labor the whole decade plus she's on the house. So and it all started last year with uh, I, I just, just spoke over the fence to the neighbor. I was like, hey, I'm replacing the section of fence. Uh, Want to go have some fence? No, not interested. I said, no, no big deal. And. I'm uh, my background is uh, engineering drawings, and I've only at least reviewed several tens of thousands of survey drawings. And 
Anyway, through, through the jigs and the reels, I went, went through it. It was a whole process. And the time I called you was because I didn't know what to do because it was it was becoming so volatile that it was like, what do you do? And so I went down to the I went down to City Hall. I spent an hour in the permit office, got an education, made sure I was copacetic there. Uh, went from fire department calls, city inspector calls, RNC calls, and uh, uh, okay. And so, where are we today? What's the update? Uh, uh, oh, I'm getting there. And while I was doing this, I was making sure I was spot on measuring everything with lines and whatnot. And I'd come around the bay for the weekend and I'd come back and there was damage, uh, uh, basically sabotage, to the point that an uh, actual legal survey pin uh, went missing that was on the other side of the fence and whatnot. And I noticed that there had been changes done. And finally, they convinced the RNC to charge me with mischief for tapping maple trees that were on the other side of the fence that I contend, and it's a civil matter more than anything, but I'm pretty confident I'm right, uh, uh, for tapping maple trees on the other side of the fence. And I had to go through the whole process of being charged with mischief. I'm a law-abiding citizen, respect the rule of law, never ever had such a thing done to me in my life. And on Monday passed, I went down to Atlantic Place, stood up and argued on my own behalf, this is how simple and easy it was, uh, argued on my own behalf and the Crown decided to withdraw because I wouldn't I wouldn't settle for uh, uh, just dismissal or not guilty because that's uh, I, I, uh, they withdrew the charges and the judge said, uh, see you later. And but I'm just advising people in these urban environments that Randy seems used to say best uh, a bad neighbor is worse than rent in the basement. And uh, I, I, you don't re- re- recollect this call at all last year? No, it's not ringing a bell. I apologize. No, 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 no worries at all. And I did it very poorly because I was wound up like a top. And I didn't know what to do. And the, our, when I got the disclosure from the Crown and whatnot, it was it was it was so funny because I was smart enough to, uh, when I was accosted by uh, three people uh, alone as an individual, the press, uh, maybe, uh, I won't say who, but somebody phone number to because on the disclosure it says uh, what was it, Mr. Murphy said I'll beat you. And I certainly did not. I did. I did suggest if you can't come over the fence line, I would defend myself without question. Okay. But, uh, but the bottom line is inside. Like it's like I followed the rules meticulously, one hundred percent, and had to go through this whole entire process. And when when we spoke last year, and I get it, a hundred percent. It's like you you couldn't make sense of what I was trying to say because I, I was I was. Scared to death that something was going to happen. It was like uh, this, this man and his wife and her, somebody else, uh, just constantly accosting me. And uh, one day uh, when I was replacing uh, okay. the thing. Go ahead. No, I, I mean, I, just, I have to get to the news now in a second, so I'll give you the next 30 seconds to uh, polish it up, Billy. 
uh, when inside the city, do your homework, and uh, like I, I, I like my freedom out around the day and whatnot. But it, it was just, it, it was just a mind blowing experience for me. It was absolutely boggling. It was like how the the resources they tied up. The expense with the fire department, the city inspectors, the RNC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then trying to make me look like some sort of uh, 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 villain. I was like, if I, if I was, something would have totally happened differently. But I, I went through the whole process. All right. It's closed and over. And just do your homework, folks. Always a fair suggestion. I appreciate the time, Billy. Enjoy the storm day. <laughs> I appreciate you. Okay. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, uh, the executive director of the Schizophrenia Society of Newfoundland and Labrador, Susan Hyde, to talk about the upcoming Family Recovery Journey Program, which begins on March the 5th. We'll find out more about that right after this. Don't go away. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show with Dr. Mike Wall. Listen live Thursday nights at 7 p.m. and Sundays at 4 p.m. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number one. Good morning to the Executive Director of the Schizophrenia Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Susan Hyde. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air. Thank you so much, Patty. Good morning to you and your staff and all the listeners. Um, first thing I want to say is, hey, gratitude to the folks keeping our streets street safe and responding to emergencies and anybody who needs to be traveling on them. Cause, um, the first thing I wanted to say before I go right into the family recovery journey that I'm going to talk about is that for those of you who don't know, um, schizophrenia affects one in a hundred people globally. So that means on the province, if anybody knows what the current population is, we're talking over 5,000 people who are living with and have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And of course, that serious illness impacts families, coworkers, um, uh, service providers, and things like that. So we're talking about an, an illness that, that actually is, is more prevalent than any of us uh, really know. Um, so as a result of that, what we do is we um, um, come on VOCM to ask your listeners to, if you know somebody um, that is living with, or if you know somebody that is a family member or friend, you know, don't be afraid to pick up the phone, go over and say, hey, I heard about this program that's really effective for families and managing the impact of schizophrenia and psychosis. Um, so we're asking that uh, um, respectfully. So thank you for that. Um, so what happens in the family recovery journey, it's five sessions. They're two hours long. And right now we're offering them on Zoom. Um, which is really effective, obviously, to reach outside the <clears throat> metro area. Um, and we talk about things like, well, first of all, we get all of our best family recovery journey guides to take us take our folks on this journey together. Um, and they're really very talented people and very knowledgeable. So one of the things we have to talk about, of course, right up front is what is it? How what what is what is schizophrenia? What is psychosis? Um, and how can the families and friends uh, manage the impact of the illness? Because um, it has a different journey for everybody, um, but it can be very um, it, it can be very difficult uh, to to hang in there when things are very unclear, especially navigating the mental health system. Um, we teach them. This is probably one of their favorite things that uh, past par- participants have said. We teach them um, effective communication skills. So it's not about getting your loved one to admit that they have a serious mental illness that has all kinds of stigma. That Accepting that they have it is not the point. The point is managing the symptoms. The point is having access to proper, uh, not proper, but 
having access to good mental health care. Um, so there's so there's actually something. This is a vocabulary word for the day for everybody. Anosognosia is a very common um, condition that happens with people that are living with serious mental illness, um, where they don't, they actually do not, they are not aware that they have a mental illness. So all the things that are going on, whether it's hygiene that, that is, you know, is being, uh, it's hard to, to get them to, to do, or, or it's just like here, we have to go to a psychiatrist or um, anything like that. It's really difficult to convince somebody to do that when they don't, they're not aware that they're sick. So that's important for families, especially and friends who are frustrated and think that people are in denial um, when, in fact, they're not in denial, has nothing to do with denial. And they're not they're not, you know, not listening to you for for anything, but the fact that they just don't. And it's a weird condition and a lot of people don't know about it. So um, that's that's my uh, that's my word for today. It took me about a week to learn how to say it. So, so say just it. say the word again for me. Uh, it's anosignosia. Anosignosia. So what's the exactly. guidance for families who have a loved one who's unaware that they are mentally ill and need help? You build a relationship built on emotions and build a relationship built on their goals. So if their goal is to get back to school, then you connect with that and, and you connect to the point where they can say, you know what, maybe I should go talk to somebody because I really want to go back to school. Not connecting because you have schizophrenia, because, I mean, you and I have talked about stigma before, and it's it's still very intense, although I like to say, say that we're, we're getting a hold of it. Um, yeah, so it's really about, it's about connecting with your family, not connecting, they remember, not saying, you know, you have, you're sick, you have to go get help. Well, they're not, they don't, literally not aware. Um, it's really hard to get them to do that. So it's usually about, you know, if somebody says, even if they're, let's say they're having delusions, you know, instead of saying, no, there's nothing on the wall that you're seeing, and no, you're not hearing voices, no, no, no. Well, it doesn't hurt to say, connect with the emotion and say, that must be really scary to see something on the wall or really scary to hear voices. And you build the connection there. And, and, and if, you, you, it's, if you tell them, yes, there's something on the wall, you're breaking your, you're breaking your um, connection to them. Yeah, so and I mean, it's not the same for everybody. You know, it can be, well, typically it's persistent. It can be quite severe. It can be disabling, whether it be because of delusions, hallucinations, or the changing sleep patterns, the unpredictable emotional reactions and the, the like. So, you know, schizophrenia, mm-hmm. and we've had this conversation, is one of the mental yeah. illnesses that people seem to be afraid of. And they think oh that there's something dangerous about someone suffering with schizophrenia, when in fact, that kind of hampers the conversation that we're trying to have. Yes. And, and I mean, we talk about that when we do the family recovery journey, too. We talk about stigma because not only does stigma occur in the, men, in the medical system, because there are people that are being turned away because that person, that doctor, whatever, doesn't want to take on this person with serious illness. That's so unpredictable at times. So the best thing we could do is just keep saying what the facts are. People living with schizophrenia are no more violent and, in fact, are less violent than the general population. When people with schizophrenia could could and have in the past have a violent moment, um, it's because they were trying to get help and they didn't get it. So we need to open up the door and say, okay, what's going on? I'm not afraid of your illness. Let's talk about it. So they're really not. And I think sometimes, well, and then, of course, you know, the the people on the, you know, the TV shows and all that kind of stuff come up with all kinds of things that aren't true. So that doesn't help very much. 
Of course not. Uh, and before we get, you know, how people can apply to be part of this program. Yeah. And I, I want this question to come across as intended. So on the yeah. national scene, there's a conversation about medical assistance in dying. And then yeah. the government has pumped the brakes and they're going to delay offer to people where their, their lone ailment is a mental illness because, mm-hmm. quote unquote, the system's not ready. Now, there's lots of talk about inclusivity or exclusionary policies here because there's not a category for made for having lung disease versus uh, kidney problems versus uh, any other uh, physical disability. But does your organization have a position on MAID regarding mental health or mental illness, pardon me? Yeah, I think that the the short answer is no um, because we haven't raised it to to an organizational point of view. But it sounds like, I I guess what happens when I hear MAID, I hear that's the future. You know, we always knew this was coming, so we need to have better discussions about it. So uh, I'll call you back in a couple months, and I'll let you know what our position is. But my personal position is, oh, like, let's hold on as long as we can. But I've also known people who are very ill, and they're 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 resistant to medications and treatments, and, and they're suffering really horribly. So, like, I, I haven't made up my mind, but my heart is in it, you know. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you on that one. Because, I mean, I can't really wrap my mind around it because you hear testimony in front of the uh, the, the committee that was struck by 15 members of parliament mm-hmm. and senators, you know, psychiatrists saying it's vir- virtually impossible to diagnose to the point where it's terminal. And But we do have stories where this lady was in the news last week saying she cannot receive any of the treatments that are out there for her mental illness. It's not working. She is struggling physically, mentally, emotionally, and she thinks she's being left out and stigmatized because mm-hmm. of her mental illness versus people with other physical illnesses that are able to, through a comprehensive process, to get medical assistance in dying. There's just so many troubling stories out there like offering the Canadian veterans and a couple of women in Manitoba mm-hmm. all they needed was additional home support couldn't get it and chose that path and it's up to yeah. them to choose between them and their doctors not up to me but it's a really complicated issue I think when we talk about mental illness and access to uh, I'll give you some time now to tell people how they can get involved <laughs> with the upcoming journey yeah. program and curiously yeah. we actually have the medical director for medical assistance in dying for Eastern Newfoundland and Labrador Dr. Aaron McKim coming up right after the break so we'll get some Excellent. more information on that front so Give us the information about how to get involved. I will do that. Um, So it's uh, just give us a call at 777-3335 or email us at ed at ssnl.org. And then the other quick thing, too, Patty, was that we're collecting stories of people, family members, friends, um, that have uh, have experience on that this family recovery journey or just on their own. So I'll also have them call us or email us about it because we're going to be collecting them on our website. So um, people respond to stories. And just one last thing for me is that, you know, I have been very, very sick in my life and I have been to the point where I didn't think there was ever any hope um, of me getting better. So that's why I'm a little cautious about answering it. Uh, you know, I understand. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but mental health oh, organizations no, will be, you know, having these types of conversations publicly yeah. or in-house. Uh, thanks for we the time, to. Susan. Good luck with Thank this uh, interesting program. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Susan Hyde is Executive Director of the Schizophrenia Society of the Province. Let's take a break. And as I just mentioned, the Medical Director for Medical Assistance in Dying in Eastern Newfoundland and Labrador is Dr. Aaron McKim. He's next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Dr. Aaron McKim, the Medical Director for Medical Assistance in Dying in Eastern Newfoundland and Labrador. Dr. McKim, you're on the air. Yes, hi. How are you today? I'm doing well, sir. I really appreciate you making time for the show. 
Sure, no problem. It's a tricky subject. You know, I think when people think about it conceptually for folks who have a terminal illness and living with uh, unmanageable pain, that this would be an option for them. But I think there's also a basic misunderstanding about how the protocols actually work. So let's start there. You know, how does the process begin? Because there's things like voluntary request, free from external pressure. So talk us through the process, how, how someone uh, approaches this topic and how they arrive at a decision between them and their doctor. Well, I guess there's many pathways that people can follow, but uh, generally um, people would talk to their primary care physician or nurse practitioner um, about their options first, right? Um, now, there's a lot of people who still aren't aware that uh, medical assistance in dying is actually legal, that it's an option out there. And there's a lot of misinformation about it as well, as you said. Uh, some people think you can have it any time for any reason at all, but there's actually a fair number of checks and balances and, and safety protocols built into the system. So the first thing somebody would probably want to do is, is educate themselves, you know, find out what the options are, what the criteria are, and you can go online uh, and find that out, or you can talk with uh, a lot of healthcare professionals um, are aware of the criteria, uh, but most of them are fairly straightforward. I mean, you have to be uh, of legal age, so above the age of 18, you have to have capacity, um, you have to enter into it without being coerced. So there's a lot of um, uh, stipulation that, that nobody should be pushed into having medical assistance in dying <clears throat> if it's not something that they want themselves. So there's a lot of emphasis on autonomy and, and on making your own decision. Um, and as a MAID assessor, uh, the goal is really not to promote MAID. It's to make sure somebody has a right to consider all their options. And whatever they choose to do at the end of the day, it, it's up to them. Right? Um, now, there's, there's two categories now. Uh, one that uh, with a person who has a reasonably foreseeable natural death. When it first started out, when the legislation first changed in 2016, that was the only, <clears throat> excuse me, the only... Um, eligibility were for people who had a reasonably foreseeable death. So, you know, somebody with terminal cancer who's got metastatic cancer, who's tried all their options uh, and are now kind of at the end of their rope um, and they're really looking at more sort of palliative care, pain and symptom management. And sometimes they want to consider medical assistance in dying as one of the possible options, right? Now, a lot of the time when people apply they, um, and they get assessed and found eligible, they don't necessarily go ahead with having a maid death. They um, just have it as, a, as an option so that if things get so bad and, and so dire and their suffering becomes so great that they can't stand it anymore, they have another, another option. They have an, an out, if you will. Uh, but a lot of the time, they don't avail of that. In fact, the last couple of years in Newfoundland, most of the people who apply and are found eligible... Um, um, more than 50% of them don't end up having uh, a medically assisted death in the end. Um, so it means that we've got lots of other good options as well. Uh, but I think it's important that people be aware of all their options. Now, a couple of years back, almost three years now, they changed the, they modified the legislation, they amended it uh, to also include people who don't have a medically, or a reasonably foreseeable natural death. Um, so these would be people who have other chronic medical conditions that would be drastically impeding their ability to, to, to lead their life the way they want to, um, who would be suffering. Um, so things like, you know, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, and, and other conditions um, that aren't going to end your life earlier than, than normal or than it, it would otherwise, but that cause your quality of life to be deteriorating to the point where you can't stand it, where you're, you're suffering intolerably. 
And, um, you know, in some of those what we call track two patients, um, they have multiple medical conditions. You know, they have, you know, spinal stenosis or maybe they've, they've had paralysis. Maybe they have COPD. Maybe they have some mental health issues as well, you know, depression or anxiety or something else. And so when we assess somebody in a, in a track two situation, there's often um, a lot more things to consider. And so we usually have to track down each one of those issues that they that they say is contributing to uh, the deterioration in their quality of life. So if they've got uh, paralysis, well, then, you know, we'll, we'll get the neurosurgeon involved to see if there's any options there that they haven't considered. Uh, we'll involve a rehab specialist. Um, if they have a mental health history, we'll involve their psychiatrist. And most of the time, people have mental health practitioners that are involved with their care. And so as long as the mental health practitioner can attest to the fact that this person um, has decision-making capacity, in their opinion, that their mental illness isn't impeding their, their capacity to the point where they can no longer make decisions for themselves so as long as they have capacity and then the second piece of that is have they considered all the available treatment options for their illness you know and in the case of mental illness have they tried you know SSRI medication have they tried or considered electroconvulsive therapy or other therapies that are available and if they've you know been been shown all of the options and considered and, and tried some of the ones that they wanted to try and after many, many years of trying, their their quality of life is is in their esteem terrible. Um, then you know they have a right to consider a medically assisted death, just like everybody else has a right to consider it. When we talk about folks, you know, reasonably foreseeable at imminent risk of losing capacity to consent to made, you know, things like dementia, early onset, and so it's not a mental illness; it's a condition of the brain. So, how do we approach that ability to consent? Because people will have, like, for instance, sundowns throughout the day, where at some points of the day they're completely lucid, at other points they're not. How do we assess that person's ability to consent? Yeah, that's a tricky one. And there are a number of tools out there available. Uh, and I find probably the safest approach is to shine light in all the dark corners. You know, you involve all the people involved with this person's care. And, you know, that can be their psychiatrist or their family doctor or their specialist. Um, and it can even involve family members who are aware of, of their their loved one. And so usually I try to make it a, a group decision. Like we all weigh in. We all um, have conversations about this. So somebody with, with early stages of dementia, um, usually they still have their own decision-making capacity. If they can articulate the choice in front of them and the consequences of that choice, then really that, that means that they have the ability to make that choice. And so in, in early dementia, maybe they can't remember you know, what they did last week or even what they had for breakfast. But if they can articulate um, their choice, I mean, they can, they can weigh in on whether they want other forms of medical therapy, if they want to consider other medication, or if they you know, want to consent for having a, a G-tube uh, or other kinds of operations. And so you, you, uh, you start early and you try to involve the person in their own decision-making process. And as long as you can establish that they have capacity, and remember, capacity is something that we generally assume that somebody has unless there's a compelling reason to question it. And when necessary, we do have a number of different types of capacity tools that we can bring in uh, into use to try to determine can this person make their own decisions. But if you determine that they can make their own decisions early on, uh, there is um, a uh, the ability to now make a what they call a waiver of final consent. The way it used to be before the amendment a few years back, 
is uh, you had to be able to consent to made even right up until the point where they are giving the injection. Right? So ju- you know, right to the point where the injection is being given, the person um, has to be able to say, yes, I want you to go ahead with this. And in cases like, say, we had an advanced cancer patient who was getting uh, higher and higher doses of pain medications to keep them comfortable, and uh, they were starting to get to the point where they were so sleepy they couldn't really respond to you properly, and in other words, losing their capacity to make decisions, well, at that point, they wouldn't be able to have made. And so sometimes what we'd have to do is lighten up the pain medication so that the person would be, be cognizant enough to be able to clearly state, yes, this is what I want, go ahead, and then we were able to go ahead with MAID. But now, because of those types of situations, you can sign what's called a waiver of final consent. So before you get to that point, when you when you are suspicious that there, it's possible they might lose capacity, uh, the patient can sign a waiver. And there's a few stipulations in that. They have to pick a specific date. So they have to say, I want to have MAID on this date. And if I lose capacity before or on that date, you can still go ahead with MAID. You can go ahead with it on that date, or you can even go ahead with it before that date if I've lost capacity before that date, um, so that the, you can ensure that you're, you're carrying out that patient's wishes, even if they're you know, in an in a unconscious state because they're requiring so many pain medications. So that is an option, and we can employ that in the, in the case of, um, of dementia, so that when somebody still has capacity, they can sign this waiver, and they can pick that date. Now, as long as they still have capacity, they can they can change that date. Uh, so if the date comes close, and you know it's the day before, and they still have their capacity, they can say, "Well, I want to sign another waiver for you know three months down the road, and we'll see how things are going then." Yeah, and just for a clarification for the listeners, and I just saw this out of the corner of my eye. Neither Dr. McKay or I are here promoting this. We're talking about something that's in a part of the healthcare system just for basic understanding of how it works and how families should understand the concept of medical assistance and dying. We're not saying go register your doctor and, and look for this uh, for eligibility. That's not what's happening here at all. Um, a couple of quick ones just based on numbers. Since it's been allowed in the country, how many applications for, if that's the right word, for made and how many have been denied? Do we have those hard numbers? Ooh, uh, I don't have those numbers right in front of me. Uh, I do know that you know when we started out, and I think it was 2016 when when the the law changed. Um, I think we had six cases that first year, and then it grew to you know into the teens, into the 20s and 30s, and it's been growing by about 30 percent roughly per year uh, since 2016. And uh, I think last year we had, I think it was about 120 or so um, cases in eastern Newfoundland and uh, of those cases probably less than half I think slightly less than 50 of those cases actually had a a medically assisted death so it's been growing steadily um, since it since it began in terms of the number of cases that were denied I don't have those numbers offhand and and that's a little tricky because sometimes people you know don't meet the criteria at all and they're you know they're told right off the bat and we never get the application or sometimes we get the application we have the discussion and it wasn't filled out and they you know they they don't check all the boxes and so uh, that's a little bit of a of a tougher number to nail down understood uh, i don't know if I, if it's appropriate to ask if you have a personal opinion on the federal government's uh, decision to pause uh, accessibility to made if your loan ailment is a mental illness and whether or not you want to help us understand what the so called quote unquote system is not ready or prepared for adding mental illness <coughs> to this eligibility criteria 
Well, I think we've got to be um, be careful on, on that one because we're already assessing people who have mental illness and other medical conditions. Right. right? Uh, this is just for people who only have mental illness as the sole underlying medical condition that this is pausing things for. And in a way, it seems a little bit like you're kind of targeting one particular group and excluding them. Like if, you, if there was any other kind of a medical therapy um, that you said, hey, well, everybody can have this therapy except people with mental illness, they're not allowed to consider this therapy. I mean, that, that would never fly. So I think we have to be a bit careful here in, in how we're, we're framing this. And any group that says that some other group is not allowed to consider a particular option, um, I think needs to be very careful in that regard. Uh, in terms of not being ready, I mean, we've got challenges in our medical system all over the place, including in mental health assessment. Um, but most of the time, people who have a longstanding history of mental illness have been involved with the system in some way. And a lot of them do have psychiatrists who've been involved and have been trying various therapies. And so I think in those particular cases, in general, I've found the psychiatrists uh, very helpful and willing to to shed light on how this person's therapy has been going and what things that they've tried and whether they think this person has capacity or not. So I think in a lot of cases, uh, we are ready to do these types of assessments. Okay. But on the whole, there, there is some, you know, some um, trepidation because it, there may be a whole lot of people who ask and we have to find ways of assessing them. So there's likely to be a bump when that, when that opens up. Um, but I don't think delaying it by three years is going to help people get ready. I mean, three years is such a long delay. I think it's more likely that people are going to say, well, this isn't a priority right now. We've got other, other crises bearing down on us that we're going to have to focus on. And this is three years later. So, you know, two or two and a half years down the road, then we'll start to look at it. So I think the three-year mark was was not that helpful in terms of keeping the pressure on to try to get this ready. But there are lots of places that have gotten a lot of things ready. You know, Nova Scotia, uh, Manit- uh, Manitoba have gotten fairly uh, extensive processes in place and, and are ready. And so, you know, I've heard people make the point this, why should you say nobody is allowed to go forward with this because some of the people aren't ready? I mean, that, that doesn't really make sense to me. I understood. Uh, last one before I let you go, Dr. McKim. And I know this is probably not your ballywick, and I don't know if you've encountered this, but for people who have a life insurance policy, generally Generally speaking, for the first two years after you get the policy, you will not be covered if you end your life by by suicide. But after that, there are some companies that will cover with a suicide-related clause. Have you encountered that conversation with people who wonder about the implications of their life insurance policy and medical assistance in dying? Yeah, that was a big uh, big concern for a lot of people, especially when the legislation first uh, changed in 2016. And uh, we tracked that one down, and uh, we got a lot of reassurance from the, the provincial government that they weren't going to uh, abide if any of the insurance companies decided uh, that they were going to renege on an insurance policy because somebody had a medically-assisted death, that that, that was not kosher. Um, so I'm not aware of any cases uh, where somebody has been denied coverage because they had a medically-assisted death. It's, it's not considered suicide. Uh, it's considered made, and um, uh, and as such, it, it doesn't really fall under that category at all. I appreciate your time this morning, Dr. McKim. Thanks for doing this. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Harry McKim is the medical director from 8 Eastern NL. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. You're listening to a rebroadcast of VOCM Open Line.
Listen live weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. He's the leader of the official opposition. That's Tony Wakem. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, before I start, I just want to offer uh, my condolences to the family of Vince Glant, of course, and to the VOCM family on the sudden uh, passing of Vince Glant. Anybody who listened to VOCM over the, over the years were fertly, certainly familiar with his voice and his professionalism, and I always remember the uh, expression, I'm Vince Glant. <laughs> I thought he was terrific. The first time I met Vince, I was a little bit in awe, to be honest with you. Consummate newsman and the best newsreader I've ever heard. He befriended me. He was very kind to me, and that's a sad loss. Yeah, totally, totally. And uh, like I said, uh, he'll be remembered. 100%. Yeah. I wanted to uh, talk today briefly about last week, the last time I called in, I talked about the uh, red tape reduction and how the province had received an F, the only province in Canada, uh, to receive an F. And uh, now we've got an insolvency report that's been issued that, again, once again, shows Newfoundland and Labrador going in the wrong direction. And insolvencies filed by consumers, for example, uh, went up by uh, almost 17% last year one year over the next 22 over 23 uh, business insolvencies went up by an alarming 141% uh, from 2022 to 2023 from 12 to 29 so these are alarming statistics and of course behind these statistics are actual people uh, businesses and uh, and people who uh, who felt that uh, they have no other option uh, but to uh, seek insolvency and that's a reflection again on our economy it's a reflection on our government because government has and is supposed to find ways to help people not hurt people and i believe that a lot of the uh, the red tape that is put in front of businesses for example is part of the challenge that business in our province face the length of time from the time you might want to open a business or the challenges you have with getting permitting and and all of the additional expenditure that comes about because of so-called red tape that's put in, in front of businesses and and these are real things that need to be changed I mean the cost of transportation as a result of increases the carbon taxes and, and all those things and of course when all of the cost of living increases people have less disposable income and and they don't buy as much as they would before they probably don't go to restaurants like they did in the past they probably don't have that extra money to spend and they're really challenged just to buy the essentials like groceries and put groceries on the on the table and and again a lot of their disposable income is reduced I mean if you've got to pay higher interest rates on your mortgage and stuff then you have less disposable income so all of this is part of it and I know for example I, I recently met with Hospitality Newfoundland and Labrador and they told me that uh, we are the only province in Canada that charges a sales tax on business insurance and 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 so that's again another another way of holding back uh, business and holding holding people back and the extra cost of doing business in this province. Yeah, I mean, and that's the trick here. Inside the big catch-all numbers of insolvency, you know, certain sectors of the economy are much more vulnerable than others. Some are really quite secure and their services are, you know, in high demand and they're always going to be fine. But for folks who, you know, I don't know what the right reference here is, some of your disposable income or your luxury budget or things that you don't need to fend the wolf, keep the wolf away from the door, those are the sectors of the economy 
economy that are struggling mightily. And then uh, there's also a pandemic implication on taking on additional debt load and your, pro- your business didn't bounce back as you hoped it would. So I think there's a lot of moving parts here to figure out as to how and why things like this are happening. So I think that report, I'm going to have to dig into it a little further because I have not read it yet, Tony, so I can't yep. speak with any, the, you know, any authority on it. No, but again, it, it comes down to, you know, liberals higher taxes and fees, you know, all contribute to less money being available in the economy to be spent by consumers and to support businesses in our communities. And that's why I've called for and we'll actually address when when we lead and we form government, we'll review every single one of these fees and taxes because we really, truly have to find ways to reduce the burden on people. And that comes with sitting down with those businesses, small businesses and others that are and, and finding ways that that we can put more to, more income in people's pockets, and that's that's the goal here. The other thing I wanted to briefly mention was I attended the rally in Cornerbrook on the redfish quota allocation, and and I I was surprised to hear that a lot of the uh, people that spoke, including the Minister of Fisheries and the FFAW, talked about the fact that they had had discussions with the Federal Minister of Fishery, and they were led to believe that this was going to be a good outcome that things were going to be done right. And they expressed their surprise at the announcement by the Federal Ministry of Fisheries. And there was even comments made to the point of why or what changed her mind. And I can only think that the decision by the Federal Minister of Fisheries to change what the expectation was, was done because of pressure from other MPs, maybe in other provinces, or from the Prime Minister's office. So that is a deep concern that when something, you know, when when people have a, the adjacency principle is not applied, when the historical dependency principle is not applied, these are real concerns. And this seems, this decision seems to be more about politics than it is about uh, making sure they got it right. And again, now that the uh, minister, the provincial minister has said he's going to turn around and, and write the federal minister of fisheries to reconsider. I don't think that's the right approach. I think it's part of the approach, but the reality is here, if the prime minister's office has interfered in, and the minister of fisheries has changed her mind, and, and this is the result, that we are the ones that are being disadvantaged because of that, then our premier needs to be in Ottawa sitting down with his good friend Justin Trudeau and saying this has to change because if we don't start to put that pressure on right at the top it's not going to happen if a minister of fisheries changed her mind already once and we don't know why I don't know that uh, simply talking to that same federal minister of fisheries is going to change her mind again we need to have the premier of our province putting pressure on the prime minister of this country and saying enough is enough and this has to stop uh, yeah, at 19% of whatever the tack is, people are thinking 25,000 tons. You know, I've heard from harvesters who have done the, the math. It barely covers fuel. So we're, we're talking about replacing what was once a pretty valuable shrimp license, which, of course, is not the case any longer. But th- there's a couple of questions inside of this whole redfish allocation that I still don't understand. So if they're talking about historically the offshore fleet had about 74%, now it's down to 58%, what constitutes the offshore fleet? You can have a 100-foot boat out there that lands its product right there in the bay to be processed in a plant on shore versus a factory freezer trawler, which is a different kettle of fish. So that I still don't quite understand, and I've never seen anyone break that down for me. And even how they made the percentage allocations to different provinces,
provinces and indigenous communities and stuff, they're just numbers. There's no rationale. There's no concept of whether or not people are going to have to build capacities to execute the percentage that they're given. So we're really just talking about high-level numbers. No real digging into what justifies 33% in Nova Scotia. Why we're adding capacity to an already fleet that's ready to go, processing plants that are ready to go, versus have to build to catch what you're not even prepared to go get. So a couple of those things really still confuse me. Yeah, and, and you know, it's time. It's, we've been, you know, we've seen this in the past. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that a liber- another liberal fisheries minister tried to take the surf clam quota out of Grand Bank and give it to one of his relatives over in mm. Nova Scotia. Summer. This is this has got to stop. And, and for too long now, we've been, uh, we haven't had any say in the management of our fisheries. I mean, whether it's the size of your boats, whether it's the type of, uh, of uh, gear you use, whether it's the quota you catch, we have no say in any of that. And I've kept saying, you know, if we can have an accord for our offshore oil, then surely we can have an accord for our fishery. It's not about us being the sole management of it. It's about having a seat at the table, a real seat that says when these decisions are made, we're there at the table and we're part of that decision-making process because it's not good enough. When I saw those harvesters standing there and they talked about and someone asked them to put up their hands how many of them would would lose their livelihood if this this doesn't change, there was a significant number of those put up. And it's not just the harvesters, it's the plant workers, it's the crews, and it's the businesses and the people in rural Newfoundland and Labrador that depend on our fishery. It is a renewable mega project, and we have to consider it to be that. And this premier needs to be in Ottawa. I know he's traveling in the country, but he needs to be in Ottawa. He needs to be in the face of the prime minister, and he needs to get it reversed. Appreciate the time, Tony. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony Wakeham, the PC member of Steamville Port of Port, leader of the official opposition. Final break of the morning. When we come back, Everett's there to talk about the recreational food fishery. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Last word this morning goes to line number five. Everett, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. I, I I I could actually probably take a whole show, and so I'm, I'm in the end and nothing. <laughs> but uh, uh, your last caller, Tony Tony Wakeham, uh, uh, he he said something that that struck with me, and he said, that, you know, we got we got to be there at the table. I'd like to remind him that at all of those meetings, we're there, we're there at the meetings, but we're on the table, not at it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what, why I called was that I was listening earlier, and uh, yourself and 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 your callers dealing with the recreational fisher, fishery were were commenting on the uh, on the lack of data and the need to have exact data and all this kind of stuff. Well, well that happens to be my ballywack, and. I've spent a lot of time looking at this, and I'm probably the one responsible for the insignificance comments and 1% and all this. Most of it is in the uh, attachments to the email I sent you, which I doubt if you've had time to read. I have it right in front of me, yeah. Okay, then. I I actually... that you you don't have because there's an extra uh, an extra addendum I sent on one of the uh, one of these consultation ones, but the real number has been measured or, or sorry the estimate because nobody got a real number but the estimate has been measured uh, by DFO uh, in uh, two reports three reports actually that have been published. Right, and and that number is around the two thousand uh, two thousand ton, two kiloton, two to three kiloton. 
It can't grow. We can't do anything about it, which should be made to grow because it's the most valuable, significant, most valuable part of the fishery to the, to the uh, or, sorry, most valuable part of the allocation on a per fish basis. It's the low hanging fruit. Uh, tourism is suffer, suffering. There's all kinds of stuff. But anyway, those numbers are real. The, the references are there. You can check them out. Uh, one was a report by uh, uh, Briolif Consulting, or two were Briolif Consulting. They estimate this was an estimate, uh, but they did. It was a paid paid for uh, research uh, document. They estimated that there, that there were about a million uh, codfish caught during the year. There's about three million trout caught in Newfoundland. There's about a million codfish. Uh, the uh, the other report was a bit of a side one. It was uh, by uh, Dr. Bratty. Uh, the uh, MSC at the time, the certification was a big thing, and they were saying they needed this number for certification. Incidentally, Dr. Bratty was doing some uh, uh, tagged uh, release studies, and he concluded that the, that the catch uh, – by using their tags that the food fishery that year took about half the allocation, half what the commercial allocation was, which was about two and a half kilotons. We have solid numbers. Now, is that significant? I'll talk to you tomorrow on that. Well, you're always welcome, and I appreciate the information that you sent along, and I did indeed read your email. I, I, I thought I might have responded too, but anyway, uh, I do have it in front of me for consideration because the conversation is obviously getting a lot of traction. <laughs> is it ever? <laughs> well, because I, I think you made reference to the fact that it's low-hanging fruit, and, you know, someone mentioned Clifford Small, the conservative member for Coast of Bay, uh, Coast of Islands. I can't remember now off the top of my head what it's called. But that is politically advantageous because people in the province i think the majority would want more access to you know what is well, whether you call it a god-given right or whatever the case yeah, may be but well yeah sorry i know my time is short so i don't mean to interrupt no, go ahead. it's not about it's not about the amount of fish uh we uh, it's about freedom and being able to plan your day and it's hurting the whole tourism industry when i've got to spend five or six weekends I can't take. I can't go to shows. I can't go to the concerts and that, and it's expensive. Yep. Right. That's right. You know, I mean, it's, it's and and it's not completely unnecessary. Absolutely. In Norway, in Norway, uh, sorry, in, in Saint Pierre, Michelin, there are no regulations. In Norway, it's one page, and tourists are encouraged, and there's no limits, no no restrictions whatsoever. In Florida, there's millions and millions of of uh, uh, recreational fishers. And they fish all year. They have more species, but they don't have the quantities that we have. It's just, it's ridiculous. Silliness. You've had the last (laughs) word, and you're always welcome, Ever. Thanks for this. Okay, thanks, Eddie. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, that was the last word, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.